0: This is the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
1: They're running a strange program, y'all.
0: Now, here's Frank Morano.
2: Did you know that Americans are about half as likely to be taking vacation in any given week as they were 40 years ago? Where have our vacations gone? That is one of the many subjects that we are going to be delving into for the next four hours. I am very pleased uh, to announce that uh, I will not be piloting this ship solo for the next four hours. Back by popular demand, our special contributor, co-host, whatever title he wants, uh, noted political strategist, communications consultant, crisis communications consultant, political consultant, a whole bunch of other things, Obi Murray. Obi is joining me for the next four Um, hours. Frank, Frank, the check cleared, but it wasn't that big, remember?
3: (laughs) Obi. uh, Back here with all you it's
2: guys. great to have you back. Uh, whenever we spend time together, on air or off, I'm always uh, struck By the fact that it seems like you're almost like Neo from The Matrix. You see things at a level that everyone else could observe, but we're just five steps behind, whether it's political strategy, whether it's communication strategy, whether it's marketing, whether it's uh, national defense policy. And I always really get a a big kick out of spending time with you. You also have just such great energy. For people who haven't heard you on with me before or for people that uh, may not be familiar with your background, give us kind of the Reader's Digest thumbnail sketch of how you you got from your mother's womb got, to we got this four chair. hours frank what's the well, rush well, give me a thumbnail sketch give the listeners a thumbnail sketch so i grew, they know what grew up in westchester
3: went to providence college uh been on my own since i was 17 went served in the army with the enlisted in the army in the, uh, as a private and then went to rotc at providence college and was uh, in el paso texas right on the border there when i was in uh, in the army came back to new york uh, worked for rudy george pataki uh, for their campaigns. For their campaigns. Just campaigns. I don't. only government work I've done is the Army. Mm-hmm. Worked for Sandy Galiff, actually. My first race back in New York was a Democrat. Sandy gale for Assembly.
2: Shoot. Why is that? I'm sure you had opportunities with all the campaigns you were working on, especially those two, uh, where they had a lot of positions to fill. Uh, you had the opportunity to go in government. Why did you choose to stay in the private sector and only dip your toe into the campaign end of things? Why not governmentally?
3: I don't have the patience. Uh-huh. I think in the campaign, I mean, when I did the Bob Turner race and seeing uh,
2: how eager you are to interrupt me all the time, I could tell that you don't have the patience. You, for Frank, you have to tell them <laughs>
3: all that. They didn't hear that in the radio, did they? <laughs> uh, but with, with Bob Turner's race, I remember sitting with Mayor Koch and he turned to Bob during a point we were trying to write a letter back and forth. He said, you know, Bob, tell him to shut up, meaning me. And Bob's like, no, no, he's telling me the things that I wanted him to tell me He goes, it doesn't matter. Just tell me what you want. They don't care in Washington what you do right now. They want you to win. And once you win, then they'll worry about what you uh-huh, do. Uh-huh. And so once that happened, it was a weird thing because of a special election. I was on the transition, which there never is usually.
2: Yeah, if people are not familiar, Bob Turner was elected uh, to uh, Anthony Weiner's congressional seat back in uh, about about 13 years ago.
3: 2011.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh, so the transition
3: meant that I got the emails from the leadership. And it said the votes are going to be on X and you, this is the way we want to vote. If your member is going to vote differently, please let us know in advance. That's a typical thing they do. I'm not speaking out of school at all, but that's an example of being one of 435 or whatever your majority or minority is. In the campaigns, we can do what we want and win, and that's all that matters, and and you have an influence. And if you're in a campaign and there's 10 staffers, you're number one. If there's 20 staffers and you're number two or three, you're still in the top 10 percent. When you go to the government, there's thousands, mm. and there's all different fiefdoms coming in, and it's, it's a bureaucracy like like, like none other – any government. And I just don't have the patience for that.
2: So, I mean, there must be – I know there are because we talk all the time. I know there are issues that you care about in terms of public policy. Do you ever say, well, look, if I was chief of staff or a congressman or a senator or a senator or congressman myself, maybe I'd be able to move the ball forward on something?
3: But then, then I'm about that issue, not about the member. Right. And then I'm in campaign. I'm about the person I work for. The, the men and women I've worked for I've been very fortunate with. They're fantastic people. So from that, I work for them, not for an issue. I don't have an agenda of my own. Rarely do I talk about where I stand on things. When I do, it's, it's unusual, and people are like – not shocked necessarily, but – If I push back and stuff. So
2: so you've mentioned a a few of the campaigns that you've worked on. You've run uh, some of the biggest upset political victories of all time. I remember we were talking about a race back uh, five years ago and uh, we were talking about, you know, I was uh, in the leadership of a political party at the time. And we were talking about a race and I said, well, I don't know if that race is going to be competitive. And you said and you didn't say it to brag. You said it to not be anything but descriptive. You said. When I'm involved in a race, it's always competitive. For the armchair political consultants listening to us right now, and we'll get into politics a little bit throughout the four hours that you're going to be here, but why is that? What makes, if a politician hires OB Murray, what makes that uh, politician special, or what makes OB Murray special that you bring sort of a killer instinct, a winning edge to that campaign?
3: I I leave it all on the table. I don't have to worry about my next job. I mean, financially and all, I have to worry about my future and everything, but... There's a couple of times I've done things where people have said, let's find somebody, and I've worked with people and tried to find the right person. And people say, no, just why doesn't Obi do it? Because I, I don't want to do it. Let's find somebody. They say, no, no. That person's going to be worried about the party or a union or an organization saying, if you stay with that person and do this, we're not going to support you next time. You can't come back and work for us. You, can't, you're, you, you won't get the next job. And no one can really say that to me because I let my work speak for itself, mm. and I've always felt that if you do that in anything, you'll do fine. I've
2: noticed, uh, especially over the course of the last year, year and a half or so, when I uh, utter a fact that is one iota out of whack, I am immediately deluged with SMS text messages and/or emails from you correcting me. Which leads me to believe that you are pretty actively listening to this program in the middle of the night most days. What are you doing professionally these days that allows you to have the flexibility to be awake? At this
3: time? Let's be right. At that point, I'm away from everybody else in the world. There's no interruptions. I have that on in the background. I listen to it and see what's going on. I'm not just sitting there following on like that. But also, Frank, when I'm doing this, when I hear your show, I hear things and I'm either aware of it a little bit, what's going on, or I've heard it and I see this. And you're the most prepared guy in the world, so I want to make sure you don't miss something. Thank you. I don't yeah, want to ruin that image that. out there no, for you. please. That's, I need all the help I can get. I do this privately. I don't tweet these things out, I, know, I appreciate all, you're, that. You're now blowing my cover. That's
2: uh, that's that, that's what separates you from the chorus of critics in the Facebook group. All right, we're going to take advantage of your expertise when it comes to the Chicago mayor's race, and we're going to have a look at the Latino vote in about uh, in about 10 minutes. We're going to get into that with an expert that you have procured for us. But I want to give folks some statistics on this, and maybe we could take some calls at 800 848 Every month, the folks at the Census Bureau send out surveys asking about 60,000 Americans what they were doing in a given week, usually the one that includes the 12th of the month. So the Bureau of Labor Statistics can measure the percentage of the workforce that's actively looking for a job but can't find one. This is obviously called the unemployment rate. So to calculate that all-important rate, the Bureau needs to know if you worked for pay during the week in question. If not... It needs to know why. After all, it would be pretty embarrassing to count someone as unemployed when they were really taking a road trip somewhere or just in, going up to the Hall of Fame or uh, having a nice vacation. So as a happy side effect of this, we now have data to calculate a much less heralded measure, the vacation rate. And apparently, at least according to these statistics provided by the Bureau of Labor Statistics, as published in The Washington Post and elsewhere last week um, – the rate of people taking vacation has fallen from 3.3 percent of the work workforce to, and this is a pretty in 1980 to 1.7 percent today. That means any given day of the week in 1980, 3.3 percent of the people were on vacation, paid vacation, and, and in today it's 1.7 percent. Additional analysis shows the drop off has been driven by our failure to take full week vacations we estimate that shorter absences have risen slightly as more folks take a day here and there for quick trips midweek errands or mental health but that bump is too small to offset the sharp drop in luxurious week plus vacations the bottom line is this Americans are not taking vacation as much as they did 42 years ago why is that the case 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. And what do you think the implications of that are? 800-848-9222. It doesn't seem to be a matter of vacation day supply. It is true that the United States is the only advanced economy without guaranteed paid vacation. There's one company that I saw, and I couldn't find the article, that's mandating their, employers have to, their employees have to take their two weeks vacation. However... Labor Bureau data on employee benefits suggests that more than 90 percent of full-time private sector workers have access to paid vacation time. And that's remained pretty steady for decades. And the number of paid vacations offered by the typical employer has actually gone up in recent years. But people aren't using it. Why? 800 848 OB, what do you make of this? I think a couple of things happen. One, people are more concerned about the
3: finances right now. I mean, the economy has been an issue. Costs are going up. So they, they don't want to lose their job. But even then, they don't want to take time off from work. And so they're they're doing that. Um, I think work from home is doing a lot with that right now. And and remote work. I mean, people, are they on vacation or not? They get more, they get more time away from the office. They get things done. And, and they've got time with family. They may take day trips. They may travel somewhere Thursday night, be away on Friday already and work remotely. Uh, And it's a different lifestyle now that they don't have to take the vacation time. They get to bank it and carry it forward.
2: The one group of people, not surprisingly because of how the school year is structured, the one group of people that, according to the data, is taking their full vacation is school teachers. They crush everyone else in the vacation uh, sweepstakes. Every full-time education workers are about 4 times as likely to be on vacation as their peers in other industries. Older workers and more educated workers are more likely to go on vacation, but an industry's pay or status it doesn't always predict vacation use. Blue-collar workers, construction, manufacturing, agriculture, those are the least likely to be on vacation workers in the entertainment and recreation field typically a lower paying sector that rec- that includes restaurants hotels they trail only educators in terms of uh, of time off i do think this is a little alarming i think that uh, the american worker is over anxious it tends to they tend to be a little burnt out they tend to be depressed i think part of the reason is we're not taking levels of vacation to the tune that our counterparts in uh, other parts of the world are. And, you know, it's funny. A friend of mine or a family member of mine the other day asked me, how much vacation time do you get? And my response was, I don't know, uh, because I really don't take much vacation and I've never used it all up. Now, I'm in a special case because uh, this job is like a vacation to me. I love doing it. But I think a lot of people don't take this vacation because they feel like uh, their job might be in jeopardy if they but
3: go away too long. Also, too, I think generationally, if you piece it together, the, the younger worker has a quality of life question. So if they're getting a the quality of life, does it include the vacation or is it the work hours, I gather? I mean, that must be something in there, too. And again, if they don't have the money, they, as uh, I think it was on your show, somebody may have talked about when you work your 40 hours, you work your paycheck. When you work after more than 40, you get uh, you work for that extra money for the family and doing different things. If you can't afford it, you can't go away. So yeah. What do you What do you do? As, yeah. As that, and then I think the other thing t- teachers that don't forget are also some of the hardest workers on your feet oh, every yeah. day. Oh, yeah. you've got a classroom, you've got all these t- the kids, and I mean that's just a nonstop thing. Um, so they also don't get that. You know, during the school year, they don't get vacation time.
2: Yeah. Well, so, except for the winter recess. but they get, and but things they like get
3: that. pieces of it. That's. That,
2: it's, it's no, not, I uh, believe not a lot. they got to prep
3: for class. They have a tremendous amount of work. I so completely I, agree. I would, and I would you never deal, argue that one. You
2: got to deal with the kids. You got to deal with the parents. You got to deal with the administrator, and uh, you get guff from everybody. eight four eight nine two two two. We're going to get into the Chicago mayor's race and the Latino vote in a moment. Uh, Elise Gould of the Economic Poly Institute, which I think is kind of a left leaning think tank. She said this, except for in very short periods of time, the late 90s or the few years leading up to the pandemic recession... Workers have had very little leverage. You see that in wages. So then why wouldn't you see that in their ability to take benefits? Now, some workers may have plenty of vacation accrued, according to her, but they may not feel free to use it. And uh, that's kind of my impression. I get the impression that people are afraid to go on vacation lest their replacement do a Lou Gehrig to them and uh, do a better job than they do.
3: And don't forget, in, in government, actually, you always hear stories about people going on vacation for too long. Not the electeds, but the staffers. And if they're away too long, somebody behind them bumps them up. Somebody right. who wants that well, job gets to, in there. To
2: my point. To my point. Uh, same thing in the world radio. No doubt about it. 800-848-9222. Rick is in Elmwood Park. Hello, Rick.
4: I have an example for you how the Washington Post has been controlled by the lefties since 1922. Well, I don't uh, think we a- have
2: much doubt about the editorial bent of the Washington Post. But give me your take on this, these statistics regarding education, Rick.
5: Well, the statistics
4: on education, I'm not qualified to talk about really, because I haven't seen the report. But I could give you a story from 1922 that might sound familiar if you're interested.
2: Okay, is it related to what we're did talking the, about? Did the grand family owned it in uh, 92? In, in
5: I'm sorry, I'm sorry, it's not. All
2: it's right, just, Rick. Okay. So we'll do another day where we get into the history of the Washington Post. As fascinating as that sounds, Fugazi Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Fugazi Tom.
6: <clears throat>
2: right. Frank. Um, a vacation. Um,
7: do you think I've got, it? maybe they've gotten a little too expensive these days. You know, the world has gotten a little more dangerous. Maybe they are scared going around these places, you know, uh, afraid of something happens. And a lot of people need, just need to save their money because, you know, times is crazy and never know what they're going to need the money for. So I think, uh, just too expensive and maybe too dangerous. And they would rather just save the money. Because there's a lot of rainy days now. Now, what was the thing on
2: education? I didn't catch the question. The teachers and people that work in education are the group of workers that are most likely to be on vacation. You agree? With, I mean, is that a question? Or no, a fact? no, it's a fact. Uh, it's a fact, according to the Bureau of Labor oh. Statistics. Uh, thank you, uh, Fugazi Tom. Oh. I don't agree with you, because you don't have to fly to uh, Hawaii or to Europe in order to take a vacation. You could just drive down the Jersey Shore. Or, I know you go up to Vermont quite a bit, right? I do,
3: as much as I can. I love it up there. It's fantastic.
2: Yeah. Um, at George Mason University, uh, organizational psychologist Lauren Kuykendall uh, looked deeper into the anti-vacation forces in a 2020 analysis that she did in the Journal of Occupational Health Psychology, and she and her students found that employees are less likely to use all their vacation days if they don't expect to detach from work and truly relax, or if they worry that vacations will set them back financially. So maybe there is something to what Fugazi Tom is saying. We'll get into it more uh, throughout the program. If you have comments, if you have thoughts, 800-848-9222. Obi Murray is here. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We're going to get into the Chicago mayor's race, specifically the Latino vote, in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. other side of midnight with Frank Morano
2: talking a little bit about vacations and why Americans aren't taking them anymore why do you think that is 800-848-9222 it's funny my sister claudia uh, who, you know, I'm very close to, obviously. She, uh, she just got back from, of all places, Chicago. And she was there for work, not for leisure, but I figured she would squeeze in some leisure activities. Turns out she didn't. She didn't even try some genuine deep dish Chicago style pizza. But these days, the Chicago mayor's race is what everybody is talking about. I turned on every TV show today, every radio show, everyone was. Fixated on this story that we broke yesterday, which is that Lori Lightfoot has become the first mayor of Chicago in 40 years not to make it to the runoff or win a second term. There's going to be a runoff now, and one of the candidates in the runoff is uh, Paul Vallis, and he actually appeared on the radio program uh, Cats and Cosby last night to talk about where things are in the mayor's race and where things are going to be when the runoff takes place in a few weeks.
8: Well, you know, let me point out that uh, I'm not so much saving Chicago as I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm going to bring the type of leadership that can draw on the best and the brightest within Chicago, people from the community. People from diverse backgrounds, but people uh, uh, who uh, who have the skills uh, and the uh, commitment to uh, to come in and help me get the city back on track. So it's really going to be a collective effort. No, the, a mayor is only as good as the people he recruits, and and a mayor is only as effective uh, as his uh, as, uh, as his ability to really partner with the with, with the diverse communities that make Chicago so unique and so great.
2: So he is going to be in the runoff in a few weeks. Now, uh, he's facing off against Brandon Johnson. We'll see where things go. How did we get here? And uh, one of the things that you haven't heard much discussion of is what role the Latino vote has played in this. Not only are we joined in studio by veteran political consultant E.O. Brian Murray, but, Obi, you have uh, you have procured for us a genuine expert in this yeah, subject. E-
3: Eli is a terrific guy. Um, I think he's on the phone right now. Does I'm he have a last name? Yeah, yeah, Valentin, yes. Eli is a professor up in I- Iona right now. I've known him over the years working in New York politics, but he also was working the Chicago's mayor's race in 2015 for the congressman when he ran at that point against Manuel. So uh, when Ron was running and got him into the runoff, at that point, so uh, Eli, how are you doing? You're out there right now. Yes, I am. Great to be with you both. Last time we had this conversation, Frank, we were at a cigar establishment. You might be aware of <laughs> having a few cigars, and, and now I owe Eli a couple of cigars for staying up this late tonight again, Frank. So yeah, i make absolutely. It up.
2: I'll chip in.
9: <laughs> so, <laughs> Sounds like a plan. That's
3: great, <laughs> Eli. Uh, you've got great experience here. I know you've you've written quite extensively about uh, the Latino vote. Uh, in New York, you're writing, uh, if not mistaken, you're working on another book, if not mistaken. And the pieces you've done and history are, are fantastic. We talked about the Dominicans and we talked about the Puerto Rican vote, Mexican vote, and so forth. But you know, today we were talking about Chicago and what happened there and the underperformance, again, of Latino vote. Um, you want to talk a little bit about that and talk about what you see going on in Chicago right now and, and what's going on? It impacts Nevada too, Frank. Some of your listeners out there, the Mexican vote out there uh, in that primary with all the unions doing their work. So, Eli. Yeah, you know,
9: I, I I find it interesting that what we see in Chicago, we're seeing all over the country, and in fact, um, I I think since uh, Latinos have uh, have moved from from what was being the sleeping giant, right, um, and 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 that term has been ha, has been thrown uh, uh, about Latinos for some time. Uh, The fact is that when it comes to to voting participation, uh, when it comes to Latinos going to the polls, uh, unfortunately, Latinos have have fallen short. And and that is what we are seeing uh, in Chicago. Chuy Garcia, congressman, uh, second time up uh, as a mayoral candidate, uh, was really banking on the Latino vote and uh, the progressive vote, Uh, you know, that coalition. To, to bring them to to what he hoped was a runoff, and it just it didn't happen, and I think and part of it is because uh, of a, of a dismal turnout among Latinos, so so it is a factor, and and Obi as you've said, uh, it is something that we're seeing in other parts of the country, including right here in
3: New York. Now, if I'm mistaken too, Eli, when we look at the polling prior to the election day, he was actually in third place at that point. And Lightfoot was the one who fell down quite a bit, but he didn't pick up Lightfoot's vote at all, which doesn't 100 percent surprise me, but it didn't go up. He was flat between the the polls before the election and Election Day at the end of the day. And there's the, the registered vote in Chicago is what, 28 percent, we said today when we were talking.
9: Yeah, uh, they're about 22 percent.
3: Is the, it was the registered vote? Yeah. Okay, and and so he oh, didn't was, even well, get registered. Vote. He didn't even get near twenty percent at this point. The Latino vote didn't show up, right. and then he didn't broaden that vote at all beyond
2: the Latino vote. Right, and we're talking about uh, people having fun. Congressman Jesus Garcia, who's a Democratic congressman that was running in this mayoral election. So he finished fourth. He's yeah. elected. He's elected congressman in the, in Chicago, and actually, uh, Eli, you're talking a little bit
3: about the ward he he represents in that area today what the turnout was. And it was even in his own district, it, the turnout was pretty weak.
9: Yeah, he represents, well, he's represented, uh, the, uh, the 22nd ward in Chicago, which is, uh, a, a traditionally Mexican, uh, dominated, uh, uh, district, right? Over here, we call them districts. And, um, this is his home base. I mean, he represented this ward in the, in Chicago city council, uh he represented this ward uh um, in in the state senate when he was a, a state senator and now uh, a, as a congressman this ward is is in that district so i mean chuice is the uh, the hometown the hometown guy right he's the, the hombre of the uh, 22nd ward and and what i'm seeing so far is an abysmal turnout in his own backyard i mean uh we're talking about uh about Uh, uh, 15 uh, percent a little over 15 percent of of latino voters in his home base uh that that came out to vote so when when you see that um and and you know this very well uh working elections over the years when when your own base uh does not turn out that that spells trouble and that's what we see with with chui there
3: you mentioned a little bit about the excitement possibly and the fact that they they didn't believe he could win so they stayed home possibly May have been part of it near yeah. the end.
9: Yeah, I, I believe so. I mean, you know, the public polls show showed Chewie not, not making the runoff, and and the polls were accurate this time around, uh, at least here in Chicago. And and yeah, I think that played a factor. I mean, you know, uh, like like anyone else, right? I mean, L-
3: Latinos love winners, right? But, but and this...
9: and uh, yeah.
3: yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Eli.
9: No, no, yeah, and I, I think it did play a factor. I, it, it's not the only factor here, but, but I do think that uh, they didn't see uh, any chances for him advancing, and I think that deterred a lot of people. Now, but
3: you could say the same about Johnson. He, the, the, he came from fourth place to second place. He picked up, I guess the, the black vote is what he really picked up at that point as the mayor fell down, and, and he got that much vote to propel himself from fourth place into second place for the runoff.
9: Yeah, I think a few factors played in his favor. One was that uh contrary to to Chewy, there was no ceiling. I mean, uh, I I think Brandon had nowhere nowhere to go but up. Um so I think so that's one. I think Chewy came in with with a ceiling already. Um, um and the the second thing is that I think he benefited Johnson did benefited from uh the the increase in in the progressive vote and and that vote moving away from Chewy. Mm-hmm. So so the progressive vote in the twenty fifteen race against Rahm Manuel was what what really boosted Chewy's chances and, and put him into a runoff. Uh, but we see that progressive base move from Chewy over to Brendan Johnson. And, so I, I think that played a factor.
3: And also, we talked earlier today, too, the Dominican Republic vote and the island and Puerto Rico, the territory, when they turn out to vote for elections in those islands, you really have, what, 90 percent turnout, you were saying? Tremendous turnout among the same type voters that are here today.
9: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's, it's tremendous. Puerto Rico is at... Uh, uh, ninety percent Dominican Republic is about yeah. It's 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 up there. It's astronomical. Uh, but as we were, were saying before the show, uh, uh, we're not quite sure what happens when when Latinos uh register in the United States um and they register, but they just don't vote the way they do back in their home countries. Um, so I mean, I think there are a lot of factors that that play into this, but. But in the end, we still can't can't figure it out. I mean, and in, you
3: know, in Nevada, and you there have are
5: several theories
3: in Nevada. You have the unions mm-hmm. that are put that doing the get out the vote activities as well. And even there, you were talking about the presidential race two years ago and how the turnout was low there yeah. as well.
9: Yes, it was. Fifty five percent of of the of registered Latinos actually went out to vote. And we're talking about a presidential election when, um, you know, a, a Right, uh, you you have the the biggest chunk in terms of voting participation. We see it in presidential elections. So, 55% of all Latinos that are registered is is a, is a you know pretty low number. And then now this past November, uh, the midterm elections, we saw that number uh, dip down another 20%. So only only 35% of eligible Latino voters went to the polls. We're
2: talking with uh, Eli Valentin. He's a contributing columnist at Gotham Gazette, a, a frequent political analyst on television, including for Univision. Let me ask Eli, are we oversimplifying the equation here by by continuing to use this term, the Latino vote, as we would say the Asian vote or the black vote? I know anecdotally when I speak to Puerto Ricans, many of them don't appreciate being lumped in with Dominicans. When I when I uh, talk with Cubans about politics, they certainly don't vote the same way that Mexicans do. There are so many different aspects of the Latino community as we're analyzing it. Is it is it foolish of the three of us to say, oh, the Latino vote when maybe there are many different subdivisions of it?
9: Yeah, that's that's an excellent question Um, and and insight. Um, Yeah, the, the Latino uh it's the term latino right it it's uh it's definitely not a a monolithic um reality uh you know and and th- there's a whole history behind the term but essentially uh the idea really stems from um i i would say the hope and the wish of of those of Latin American backgrounds that are in the u s to 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 gain some type of of power and specifically political power the mexicans figured out we can't do it by ourselves there's just not enough of us uh so puerto ricans come along right on a national scale and they were like hey why don't we why don't we uh join hands if you will and and you know let's let's create this 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 idea that although we come from different countries uh but but here um there is something that that brings us together um, so i think there, there there's definitely a, a political history behind the term uh but but in, in essence yes there's there's so much diversity um not only in terms of com- countries of origin but by consequence uh there's diversity when it comes to ideology and 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 political uh decisions right and 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 voting i mean yes so absolutely it's uh it's definitely a complex issue.
3: And- George Bush got we said uh, 40% of, of the vote among among the uh, Latino vote right? yes. and it's, and yes. then you take you take that vote Frank and you take the, the black vote and take the Latino vote yes within Latinos we talked today in New York about Dominicans there's going to be more Dominicans than Puerto Ricans they're going to increase that here in in Chicago it's Mexican in Nevada it's Mexican so yes they're 100% and in New York when you've got the Cubans as you mentioned and, and other countries as well it really they come together on the ads a lot but even within that when you talk about Univision and so forth, you have to go back down deeper to radio, to, to weeklies and, and print uh, and even the TV stations at times and figure out what you're trying to speak to. You're trying to speak to Dominicans and Puerto Ricans and so forth. It's a whole different uh, different issues they care about and priority and so forth, because you have to speak to the group, not just the ethnic coverage. I mean, I mean with black vote, don't forget, too, the black vote's got the African-American vote and the Caribbean vote. Mm-hmm. And the Caribbean vote is more likely to vote Republican than the black vote. Interesting.
2: Uh, That's uh, the voice of O.B. Murray, noted political consultant. We're joined on the phone by Eli Valentin. Uh, Eli, uh, you know, a lot of the people listening to this, they're less interested in uh, how different ethnic groups voted and more interested in results here. Now, uh, people may not believe this, given what we've watched for the last four years. But when Lori Lightfoot ran for mayor four years ago, she ran on an issue uh, on the crime issue. She ran as the candidate that was going to to reduce crime, she was attacked by the far left because of her history as a prosecutor and because uh, of things that she'd done with the police task force. They were concerned that she was going to be too much of a hardliner. Uh, m- meantime, Chicago's still a mess. It isn't the reason that she lost here, becoming the first Chicago mayor in four decades, not to win a second term? Isn't it all just a matter of the fact that she didn't do what she campaigned on four years ago?
9: Yeah, yeah, I think that definitely the Wallace the vote uh feels that she she did not do enough. But but interestingly enough, I think the, the progressives uh feel she didn't do enough, but on the uh, the going to, in the other direction, right? And and I think what we're seeing in Chicago um is what we're seeing in New York and and and, and in other urban centers across the country, we're seeing a divide uh, a, a huge divide and it's not a divide between Democrats and Republicans yes that exists it is even palpable but we're also seeing a a huge divide within the Democratic Party uh w- one that sees um right a, uh, a a certain base that that leans more uh toward you know the, the moderate uh, Right, moderate positions when it comes to public safety and other matters. And then you have the, the the progressives, and I would say, really, the, the far progressive left. That um, in, in the case of Chicago, they felt that Lifer was just um, she needed to go in a completely different direction um, and not put as much money in, in, into the sh- Chicago Police Department um, and and to do other things. Right, it, it, and we've seen that, by the way, in New York. We're seeing it in the city, at the state level. Um, and so, yes, it, I think she was a victim from both of those Democratic bases.
3: I Absolutely. You mentioned the Democratic Party, too. This is an open primary, I think, which is very important for people to know. So any party could vote yes. in, this, in, in this vote, which means you didn't just have progressives versus the moderate Democrats, which is what happens in New York. You have an open primary, mm-hmm. Frank, which is something you've talked about quite a bit. Where anybody comes in and votes, and if you look at it, the mayor got 17 percent, an incumbent mayor. 83 percent of the electorate that yeah. showed up that day was against her. That's a major number. And the progressives Huge, didn't, get, yeah. didn't get what they wanted, but if they had gone that far, would it be lower than 17
2: Eli, let me end with this. Um, you know the all the seven candidates that didn't make it to the second round, including Mayor Lightfoot, including uh, Congressman Garcia, Willie Wilson, Jamal Green, everybody. Where do their votes go? With uh, with one, two, three, four, five, six black candidates all losing, and one black candidate in the runoff. I would think that if we're talking ethnic politics here, a lot of the support of those black of those losing black candidates may go to Brandon Johnson in the runoff. How do you see it?
9: Yeah, I see it that way. I think Brandon Johnson will solidify the black vote, which is significant in Chicago. They they're almost a third of the entire electorate. Um, So that that base is really important. He has already solidified the progressive vote. Um and and I and I see Chewy Garcia going his way and and the Latino vote going his way. Um I so I think Brandon Johnson will be quite formidable in, in the runoff. Um and and, and this will be uh I think largely because the black vote will really be consolidated.
3: Now the other thing too is Garcia had a lot of negative ads against him by Lightfoot. Mm. So there's no love lost there. And then Lightfoot the question is Will she endorse in the race and would it be beneficial? Will it hurt? And those 17 percent, will they go – will even show up? That's 70 percent of the electorate that voted for her. Will they go somewhere she doesn't endorse? And if she endorses, will it hurt
2: Johnson with other people, other voters? I mean there's a lot of things to watch here, Frank. And we're going to be watching it. Uh, Eli, hopefully, we'll speak again in the next five weeks before, between now and the runoff. Thanks for staying I, up on late air, with Frank. Us. On air or at, at uh, a place we smoke cigars? Uh, my preference is the latter, Eli. <laughs> uh, we'll see you soon. Thanks for staying up late for us. Thank you, Eli. Thanks so much. A pleasure. Uh, all right. If you want to comment, you can do so. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. It's the other side of midnight. Frank Moreno here with, uh, with OB Murray. Um, it, you have a prediction on this race? Are you going with the conventional wisdom that it's going to be Brandon Johnson because of all the, the black voters from all the other candidates? Or what do you think? I wonder what the turnout's going to be. Mm-hmm. When I see the,
3: are people not going to show up for runoff? as you you like the rank choice so people don't have to show up again right. at this point. If there was a ranked choice, what would happen then versus what's going to happen after an election? As I said, a lot of that negative ads they were against Johnson, they were against uh, the Gar- against Garcia. Now uh, VLS has a a issue that came up about his about Twitter and people were on his account and if you see they were retweeting things that were conservative or Republican type type things and he. Said people hacked into it, which his staff still had his Twitter account from before. Who knows where they went? So that'll come up. But if you look at all the talking points right now, mm. he's being tagged as a Republican. And how much of that city is going to vote for a Republican? It's same thing happened in L.A., too. Which he's not. I mean, he might be pro-police, but that doesn't make you a Republican. But he, but they're going to say all these right, things about sure. him, what he did before. Now, remember, education's a big issue, too. And he ran the education system. If they like what he did and his aspect of, of, of deliveries— if it was good, that's a major thing, too, because you have crime and you have that. and He's got the police unions behind him.
2: Yeah, well, it's uh, certainly going to be very interesting to see how it turns out. He was, uh, I, I understand, in the running to be the school's chancellor here in New York, uh, but ultimately did decided to stay in Chicago. All right. Uh, we were talking the other day about uh, on the air and then you and I commented privately about the. Problem the Pew Research study that showed that uh, single that young men are single at a far greater rate than young women are, and uh, you know, your status these days you're divorced, right? I'm divorced, I, was, I gave up being married for Lent, Frank. <laughs> That was a march 20
3: years ago and I'm still single.
2: Something tells me that wasn't that much of a uh, of a sacrifice.
3: Frank, come
2: on. Come on, a little heart. So the New York Post uh, and our friend Alex Mitchell, uh, he's got an article in today's paper saying uh, that you, talking to a lot of these young men that are single and he the young men tell the New York Post that the reason they're single and the reason they're choosing to be single is that the dates are not fun to go on. You meet someone online, you go on a date, and according to several of the young men quoted in this New York Post article, the dates feel more like job interviews than something pleasurable and something recreational. What's your uh, take uh, on this whole situation? Uh,
3: Jack Welch, in his book, God bless him, uh, said that being... uh, Five foot nine or five foot eight, whatever he was, um, uh, and bald. Right, uh, being being five foot eight and bald in New York City when you step on your wallet, it's like <laughs> it's like being six foot tall. <laughs> I bet. So I think that's one of the challenges it, today. It, it, there's been a lot of talk about this study, but where today, where you swipe, you just when you're swiping, it's all looks, purely looks, right? And some of these issues of, of income and where people want to go, that's a major screener at this point for some people. Now, a, a w- buddy of mine was out one night years ago and he, he worked for a non here in the city and he's doing very well now with other stuff but nonprofit was a real estate guy and when they heard that women just were like eh. One night he went out and said
2: he went to Harvard. Mm. And they all... We're talking to him like it was marriage material right. well, that drives with what we 're seeing in this New York post article and if people didn 't hear the segment we did on this the other day, uh, the data from the Pew Research Center shows that sixty three percent of men under age thirty are single, and that 's up from fifty one percent in two thousand and nineteen. One gentleman, Ian Breslow, 28 years old, high school teacher, lives in Astoria, says to the New York Post, dates feel more like job interviews now, much more like what can you do for me and where is this going? The getting to know you period is gone, and that doesn't feel so great after coming out of isolation. He talks about a recent first date that went quite well until the woman interrogated him on their walk home. She literally asked me, would you rather our kids go to public or private school, followed by several more extreme questions about getting married. I just started responding with what I knew she would hate the most to get her to leave. And apparently experts agree that women are certainly wanting more than ever before. Well, I think it's a little short. I mean, Mm -hmm. It's a question of how people
3: deliver their questions and where they are and when it is. Who knows the circumstance? Maybe she had a bad experience before where somebody wasn't straight about what they wanted or she knew what she wanted because that was an issue of the week for her. It's all a question of how different messages are delivered and questions are asked. But in women's defense, take a look at that study and talk about – it talks also about the men who are home, who are not going out, who have fewer than five friends, fewer, that that are good friends of theirs. And versus those that are older. So if they're going out with an old, meeting an older guy, maybe he's more uh, outgoing, more charismatic, instead of staying home and, and playing games and, and just being online, and the
2: social interaction isn't there.
3: Then there's, a, there's, a, there's two sides to look at this, Frank, and yeah.
2: they've got to come together. Well- Right. I, I don't think there's anything wrong with women wanting more. And if you look at how the advancements that uh, women have made, not only uh, financially in the workplace and educationally, it's no wonder that they're looking for a mate that is up to their level. Ronald Levant, a professor em- emeritus of psychology at the University of Akron, said the overall picture is that if a woman is going to go on a date with a man, chances are it's not for a casual fling. Especially, there's a quote from Professor Levant, if the woman is kind of getting close to 30, she's thinking about the biological clock and wants to have a family. Um, So I I don't know if that's true in in my experience. Every woman that I've gone out with for more than about six months or a year, Frank? Is now married. All my exes are married. Uh, that's very impressive. you like, well, uh, uh, for what? Impressive how like, I, I can't figure it out. You're like, good luck, Chuck, right? I, well, if, a, if a woman wants to get married, they should go out with you, right? I, that's the lesson. I'm not going to go there, Frank. 800 848 9222. Al is in Yonkers. Al, you're on the other side of midnight. Hello. <laughs> Al, uh, uh, we're not keeping you from anything, right? We're not interrupting He's, anything. He was rolling over. That
6: was a pillow. Frank, uh, thanks for taking my call. It will be uh, nice uh, to hear from you tonight. I just Thanks. want to make a comment and then ask a quick question.
2: Yeah, well, go ahead, make your Our comment alert. and ask oh, your yeah,
6: question. sure. You know, I wanted to say from what I under, oh, from what I followed with the the race in Chicago, uh, the congressman, the Mexican American congressman, a Yep. Uh, I think he went from Bless front runner you. to fourth place and underperforming due to the fact that he had one time got questioned. He had took uh, monies from uh, Sam Backman, and Sam Backman had done a poll for him in his congressional district, I mean, uh, uh, a mailing. And when he was questioned about it, he, the congressman, uh, he didn't answer properly. I think that hurt him Are you
2: talking about Sam Bankman freed the crypto guy? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and, and that's your question or your comment? Or is that both?
6: On my comment and my question to both you because you're both experts in the field. Okay, uh, okay. Do you agree that uh, Johnson in the runoff on April 4th, he's going to try to pull a rainbow coalition of, of of the blacks, liberal Hispanics and liberal whites, just like Harold Washington did in 1983 in Chicago? Yeah, well, that's that's Lincoln's what I said. In 89.
2: I, I, yeah, thank you. It's Al. got, I, it's I got think to he, be addition,
3: right? That's what he's got to do. He's got to build up his his, his base of coalitions. But I think the other thing that's interesting there is, um, yes, that was a big attack on him with uh, with the attacks for, for the crypto money that came in there. But the other thing was he started late. He wasn't going to get in this race, and the unions that supported Johnson were going to support him until he waited too late to get in the race. Right. right. So that there's that part too. He didn't have that coalition. To start out, otherwise be different. And I think what, what uh, Eli said before, it became a self fulfilling prophecy where when there wasn't something inevitable, it didn't drive the excitement.
2: Interesting. All right. 800 848 9222. If you want to comment on anything that we are talking about, this is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano here with Obi Murray. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
6: One bad apple. The
2: Osmonds. Uh, Jay Osmond of the Osmonds is sixty-seven years old today. Happy birthday, uh, Jay Osmond. I love the Osmonds. You like the Osmonds? Donnie Memory, of course. Grew up watching How about Jay Osmond? Yeah.
3: Now yeah. take him or leave him. Take yeah. him, or leave him. Okay. So, step. She's step brother. What is he?
2: The Mormons. Uh, you know, I, I've lost track of the relation, the familial chart of uh, of which Osmonds are. Are related to uh, to who? All right, uh, Obi Murray is uh, with us for all four hours of the program today. Let me run this by you, and for anybody that wants to, you know, comment on this. So, uh, my wife and I moved into our house about about two and a half years ago, maybe three years ago, and uh, the ha- we bought the house from flippers, people who were flipping it. They owned it for maybe five or six months, right? <laughs> The uh, prior owners, prior to them, I think were there for 15, 20 years, maybe even longer. They were there a while. And um, lo and behold, we never met them. You know, We never met the flippers, just their attorney at the, at the closing. And lo and behold, for the last three years, we have been constantly getting mail to our house for this family, the Seidenfadens, that lived there years ago. And... Some of it looks pretty important. There's mail from the Social Security Administration. There's mail from the IRS. There's mail for five or six different members of this family that's coming to our house every day. So my wife says to me yesterday, she said, we got another piece of mail for Margaret Seidenfaden. Let me throw it on the pile. You know, And my wife is not like me. I'm a clutterer. I like to collect things. She likes to clean up things. She likes to discard things. And she says to me, What should we do with this stuff? I mean, are we making any effort to get in touch with them? Uh, do we just throw it out? I mean, I hate to throw this out, these are important looking documents. What? First of all, I don't understand why they didn't make more of an effort to forward their mail. But the forwarding mail is only for like six months or so. The
3: I, government doesn't do it forever. Right. Or we'll file a change of address it, at least. You file, it, you file the change of address for forwarding,
2: and then it disappears, and the mail comes through. But So, what would you do with all this mail that is now? There's a stack of mail. I'm, I'm doing a reenactment of Chris Kringle and Miracle on 34th Street, only with the Sidon Faden mail. You have a fireplace, right? No, yeah, right. <laughs> it's but it's so, kindling.
3: No, but should, well, you would discard it. I, well, I think the first thing you may consider. I mean, you didn't buy from them, so it's a little bit right. different um, with a flipper involved. But you, if there's a way to contact them simply and say, "What do you want to do with this stuff?" and so, have them just, you could also if you have their address, we do. have them give you. No, right. but once you contact,
2: have them give you labels or something like and slap it on, and say forward no, or whatever. I'll I'll, I'll pay yeah. the postage happily. Uh, you know, I there was one guy that listens. Who's in sanitation and he worked with the 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 patriarch of the family, but he died years ago. Other than that, we have no relationship with any of these well, other he, people. I the think patriarch. they moved to another state. Yeah, another state, wherever. But I mean would the kids have it then? The I, I, I don't know. I don't know what the what the story is here. So what would you do with all this mail? You throw I, it away, you I, burn I, it?
3: I I give I make a little attempt to try to reach them. You're doing it right now. Maybe somebody
2: on the on the line on the air right now knows who these people are. All right. Well, yeah, if you're a side and Faden, please email me, Frank.morano at WABC Radio. House. Um,
3: yes, when your wife was out of town, we right used
2: outside, smoke cigars. It was <laughs> a mean, little late night. Don't make
3: it sound so nefarious. Drink, well, it's <laughs> there was some Portuguese liquor I brought you. That's right. That was Jack Marge had given it to me when I worked his campaign out yes, in Nassau County, right. and it was good stuff. That's right. Very strong. Ha-
2: wh- what, what 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 have you done? Have you ever gotten mail for people that lived at your prior residence? I've been in the same apartment I've been in for twenty years. Wow.
3: And my ex-wife and I had a place up on Seventy Second Street. We bought uh, and then bought the place next door, renovated it, fifteen hundred square feet. Work. Great real estate deal, Frank. But I bet, uh, yeah, there was no f- mail coming in there because we bought it from the state.
2: I see. So, well, if someone has a thought, let me know. That's 800-848-9222. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. They don't know where these your neighbors are. don't know the people that live there for how many years. I mean, they they a lot of them weren't there uh, prior to three years ago, and then they these folks didn't really keep in touch with anybody. They didn't leave anybody their contact information. They don't sound neighborly. Well, I mean, I, I don't know them. I mean, uh, but I just don't know what to do with all this. You've stuff. got a great neighborhood too. Everyone knows everybody. It seems oh, and, it's, and that's true. That's true, and uh, all the more reason I don't want to. I don't want to do anything to screw these people over by discarding their mail. But I just, uh, I, you know, have I, you looked them up on Facebook? Yeah, I, I wasn't able to get in touch with them. I w- wasn't able. To, I messaged someone that I thought was part of the family, but the, I didn't hear anything. The important stuff. If you can't
3: find out where to go, the important stuff. Return to sender. Let's send it back and put it on them because that okay. way they will know they have the wrong address and so not being served. M-
2: maybe that's what I should do, just take the stack of mail to the post office and say these people don't live here anymore? Well, that or just in the future, not forget the post
3: office, just write on it, moved, return to sender type uh-huh. thing. And then the post office will do it one by one as you get it each day. You don't have to right. like, go to the post office with the bulk. Piece of it so is that that what i should do you
2: think the, oh, yeah. paul in new jersey you agree with obi do the return to sender thing
10: yeah just write on
11: it return to sender not at this address put it in the um mailbox like sticking out and then let the, and let the postal service handle uh, okay, it. okay
2: that's what i'm going to do tomorrow then thank you yeah. paul and thank you obi you know what I, I rather than write it i'd like to get a stamp that says return to sender i'm going to order one right now there's a song Right, right exactly. We'll send them the Elvis record as well with it. All right, Opie Murray is here. Um, we're going to get into the exciting world of canines in just a minute. This is the other side of midnight. Uh, until next hour, help control the pet population, get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This
0: is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
1: They're running a strange program, y'all.
0: Now, here's Frank Marano.
2: I am a dog lover. And, um, you know, I, I mean, the do- one type of dog that I really am not crazy about are these tiny little dogs that, like, Paris Hilton would run around with or, or celebrities. That's not my kind of dog. Any medium to large-sized dog is my kind of dog. And not a dog that looks like an oversized rat. Uh, I don't currently have a dog because I live with three cats that I am the step-parent to. However, my mom has a dog, Watson, who I really do view like a brother. And I still, even though I don't get to see him as much as I like, I really do consider him, you know, family. So uh, a lot of folks have debated for years. A lot of folks are like me and they like dogs. A lot of folks have debated for years whether or not the the intelligence quotient of dogs. Are dogs smart or are they just instinctual? Are they perpetually looking for food? Will they uh, give a burglar a lick if a burglar throws them a dog treat? Well, there was a very interesting there was a very interesting piece that PBS did. It's a few years old, I believe now, but it was sent to me by a, a very distinguished uh, broadcast journalist, Jacqueline Carl. Some of you may remember her. She is just terrific. And she sent me this uh, story that PBS did, and I was fixated on it. Essentially, it explores whether or not your dog really loves you or they're just trying to get Treats eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. I'll say I'll tell you what the research suggests in a moment. Obie Murray is here, noted political consultant and crisis crisis communications advisor. Obie, are you a dog guy at all? What's your deal when it comes? I love to dogs. dogs.
3: I, I didn't grow up with a dog. My sister had a cat. Uh, I'm allergic to cats. Uh, as I say remember at your house you'd be yes, a little careful. Yes, at that's that why that point. we made you stay outside. <laughs> is that the reason why? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I, I, I couldn't tell. Um, but uh, yeah, I've I was fortunate up in Connecticut. My girlfriend up there had a great, uh, had two dogs, fantastic. Chi Chi and Bryn were fantastic, a lot of fun. And uh, I couldn't get enough of them, terrific. Jump on my lap, outside in the yard. I'd smoke cigars outside mm-hmm. under the porch or something like that, or outside on the patio. And uh, Bryn and Chi Chi were always there.
2: Terrific. Well, so there was uh, Gregory Burns, who is a pr- professor of neuroeconomics at uh, Emory University. He and his colleagues have trained a dozen dogs to lie down in an MRI scanner awake and unrestrained as part of a study to determine how dogs' brains work. This is what uh, Professor Burns had to say to PBS. You know, the traditional ways to understand what dogs are thinking is to look at their behavior. But the problem with that is that dogs will
12: often do things we don't expect. Brain imaging gets around these problems by going directly to the brain and, in essence, bypassing behavior and and go directly to the
2: organ that causes everything to happen. By comparing those two conditions, the anticipation in particular, to food versus human, we can go in and look at the reward system of the brain and see which one is higher or not or are they equal perhaps so for 2 years burns and his colleagues uh, have been training dogs to go in an mri scanner completely awake and unrestrained and their goal has been to determine how dogs brains work and even more important what they think of humans their the conclusion from this group essentially is dogs are people too. He wrote in the New York Times, After training and scanning a dozen dogs, my one inescapable conclusion is this. Dogs are people too. Because dogs can't speak, scientists have relied on behavioral observations to infer what dogs are thinking. And you're looking directly at their brains and these MRI scans and what they can tell you about a dog's brain They have found that it's not that dogs are just looking for treats. They genuinely respond to affection. They respond to compliments. They respond to pleasant sounding voices. So they started teaching this one dog to go into an MRI simulator. The dog learned to walk up steps into a tube, place her head into a custom fitted chin rest and hold rock still for periods of up to 30 seconds. She also had to learn to wear earmuffs to protect her sensitive hearing from the 95 decibels of noise that the scanner makes. So after months of training and some trial and error at the real MRI scanner, they were rewarded with the first maps of brain activity. And soon, the local dog community learned of their quest to determine what dogs are thinking. And so they assembled a team of a dozen dogs who were all MRI certified. So... Although they were just beginning to answer the basic questions about the canine brain, the, apparently there was some striking similarities between dogs and humans in both the structure and function of a key brain region. And it's rich in dopamine receptors, and it is very similar to how the human brain Uh, reacts with respect to that so i think this is a real breakthrough in terms of looking at how dogs brains works and work and what motivates them 800-848-9222 if you uh want to uh if you want to react to this or if you have a comment on this 800-848-9222 ob is showing me a video of two dogs what am i to take this this? is
3: chi chi and bren out in the yard having a great time they're terrific a lot of fun uh, Chi-Chi had been abused, it was rescue Oof. at some point, yeah. And she would always, when you put the food out in the morning or at night, she'd jump right into it. She'd go after Bryn's food. Bryn, leave the food there all day.
2: Uh, well, it, it's uh, I think it's very, very interesting. 800 848 Alan is in Bayonne. Hello, Alan. Good morning, Frank. Always a good show. Uh, you're talking about dogs, and I'd like to give you something
9: and your audience something that was given to me a while ago. It's a saying. It says, you'll know you've made it into heaven if when you get there, all the dogs that you ever loved in your life come running to you.
2: So needless to say, it sounds like you agree with the uh, research from Professor Burns here that uh, dogs really do respond to affection. They're not just interested in treats.
9: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah.
2: yeah. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. By the way... Uh, Jacqueline, who who sent me this PBS special, apparently she informed me, which I had no idea, nobody spends more money on their dogs than New York and L.A. That wasn't in that uh, PBS show, but it is interesting. Uh, to know uh, that uh, New Yorkers and Los Angeles people, they don't even think twice, whether it's vet bills or dog stuff or anything at all, the New Yorkers and Los Angelinos they are the first ones to spend money on their dogs. Why do you think that is, Obi?
3: I think they treat them like, like their kids. They're, they're members of the family, Frank. I mean, mm-hmm. they are so tight. Anything they can do for their pets, they they will, and yeah. especially dogs, cats, so forth.
2: Very interesting. Studies show that uh, they have the same genes that people with a certain illness have that creates dopamine and oxytocin in the brain by experiencing love. And you have these MRIs proving that dogs' pleasure centers light up more from praise and affection than from food. I think this is uh, pretty groundbreaking here, quite frankly. If people are interested in seeing this, um, you know, I'm going to link to this. It it, it debuted, it's a couple of years old, February of 2020. But uh, do dogs love us or do they just want Treats and uh, PBS did a whole thing. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page right now. Uh, Facebook.com/slash/MoranoFan. Uh, Frank, it's a two-way street too, though.
3: I mean, the, the the love and affection you get from the pets is terrific too. I mean, you talk mm. to them, you you, you know it. You with your cats, or your wife with the cats, at least for sure. Yeah,
2: that's been borne out, actually. In study after study, we see that there are a lot of health benefits to being a dog owner. Initially, they thought it was because you're more likely to go for a walk and be a little bit more physically fit, but apparently, even people that are dog owners that don't walk them, they have higher levels of uh, serotonin and all sorts of uh, uh, more positive health outcomes just by being around the dog. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that... You just get enjoyment
3: out of it, and you know you, they, you take care of them; they they take care of you. You know they wake you up in the morning. They wake up in the middle
2: of the night. All what, that great stuff. You know you're so right. 800-848-9222. One of the things that um, that I've always been impressed by when it comes to this audience is w- there's always a substantial portion of the audience that is able to be remarkably cynical. And skeptical of everything. Doesn't matter the subject we're talking about. Could be immigration, aliens, or wine. And you always have somebody that's, uh, for lack of a better description, an angry curmudgeon. Yeah, I don't believe that. Oh, it's all it's all fixed, whatever. So I'd love to hear from you if you dispute the findings of Professor Burns and his colleagues working on these MRI simulators showing that dogs' brains don't just react to treats and food, they react to affection just the way humans do. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Queens. Hello, Joe.
5: Yeah, I have two parts to what I want to say, Frank. I'm reading this audio book, Behave, and it says the feral or undomesticated dogs in Moscow have learned how to ride the subways in Moscow. And then, just as I'm reading that, I got into a conversation as a dog in New York that took the subway the same time every day, and then they put a collar on him, and he was taking the ferry. He liked to take the Staten Island ferry at a certain time.
2: Well, <laughs> so what do you make of that, Joe?
5: Uh, I, I'm, I'm amazed.
2: Yeah, you we, and me both. Thank you, Joe. We, 800 849 We brought to the, Br-
3: Br- 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 the city one time, took, took her on the subway. It was terrific. Subway, the bus, all that stuff. Taxis all around the city.
2: She loved it. I don't doubt it. Um, Mitt Romney's dog loved riding on the roof of their car, apparently. eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Emily is on the New Jersey Turnpike. Hello, Emily.
12: Hi. I know it's a terrible story with Mitt Romney's dog on the roof. Well, so
2: much of what Mitt Romney does is terrible, but but yes. Oh, that's
12: true. <laughs> that's true. Um, not only do I think that dogs um, respond not only to treats, but to affection and love, but I also think that they're comprehension and their understanding of um verbal is amazing i have a french bulldog who's, 20, who's 12 years old and understands probably about at least 250 words and people don't believe me and um i'll give them examples and i'll show them and they're they're just really amazed so i think that they're just very very smart. what, what do you mean by uh,
3: understands and have an example for us
12: Okay, um, for example, we live in an apartment in Manhattan, and um, he has favorite people in his life. And I'll say, um, okay, Max, Annabelle is getting ready to come over. Do you want to see Annabelle? And he'll go walking right towards the door. Hmm. And then his brother is away at school, his human brother. And, um, I mean, it's obvious that he knows his brother's name, Wills. But I'll say, Max, Wills is going to... Be home in a few minutes, and then he'll go to the door and he'll wait there um, for as long as for a very long time. And so I think that you know, just their their ability to also retain
13: the knowledge,
12: um, you know, and the and the the, the verbal description is um, it's it's quite um, it's it's pretty astounding. Emily. And if- well,
2: I don't think give them enough credit. Emily, do you think when it comes to the, uh, the intelligence of dogs and their, yeah. either their ability to retain language like that French bulldog with 250 words, that's a pretty impressive vocabulary for some mm-hmm. c- people, let alone some of our callers. Forget about dogs. Uh, do you think the intelligence of dogs is based on breed, for instance? Are certain types of dog breeds likely to be smarter than others in your experience?
12: That's a very good thought. I've often wondered that based on um, their literal brain size. You guys, you were talking about smaller dogs earlier. And I i don't know if, you know, if because a Chihuahua's, you know, head is that much smaller and a French bulldog's head is.
2: Which look smarter and more intelligent.
12: I'm, I'm not sure, but I have often pondered that.
2: All right, well, thank you, Emily. We're starting to lose you. Call again. Appreciate it. Let me, now, given what Emily said, which I found pretty convincing, and given what Professor Burns, who is, has impeccable academic credentials, I don't think anybody would dispute this, we see that dogs are one intelligent, and we see that they're too emotional, and in fact, have the same kind of responses to emotions that humans do. In this country. We have long considered dogs' property. Now, the Animal Welfare Act of 1966 and certain state laws did raise the bar for the treatment of animals. They solidified the view, though, that animals are things, that are objects that can be disposed of as long as reasonable care is taken to minimize their suffering. But now, by using this MRI to push away the limitations of what Burns calls behaviorism— we really can't hide from the evidence. Dogs and probably other animals seem to have emotions just like us. And should we reconsider treating them like property? If I, if someone steals someone else's dog, they don't go after that person the same way that they would if they were stealing someone's child. Someone kills someone's dog, they don't go after them the same way as if they had assaulted a person. Who's, who's they? The uh, authorities, prosecutors. Uh, yes and animal cruelty of course you can't well, do that you cannot
3: treat pets poorly like that frank that's but, they, they got it. there's there's a limit
2: but if i want to uh take a uh, a, veter- a dog to the veterinarian and get him put to sleep even though there may not be an indication that he's unwell, you can do that because a dog is property uh, and if, um, if, if you steal a dog from someone, they look at it as a stolen property case. Do we need to expand the legal definition of what of what a dog is?
3: I, I, I can't speak to someone taking a dog to a vet that's, that's perfectly healthy and, and doing that that would be just atrocious. I think that kind of person probably wouldn't have a dog in the first place and would mostly take him back to where they got them from. Mm-hmm. I would think or hope because that's not the place. Right. I would with. hope so as well. I mean, that's
2: just horrendous. Uh, you know, I know someone that did that with a cat recently. That's why it's it's on Ugh. my mind. But what, they look, I mean, look, and I don't want to judge anybody's circumstance, but this is someone that was moving and moving to a place mm-hmm. where they didn't permit pets and yeah. they had no option uh, and it, they, uh, they, whatever, I don't yeah, want to get into this but particular this- situation. But um, what what Burns is suggesting in this New York Times op-ed is a sort of limited personhood for animals that show neurobiological evidence of positive emotions many rescue groups already use the label of guardian rather than owner to describe human caregivers. And uh, failure to act as a good guardian runs the risk of having the dog placed elsewhere. But there are no laws that cover animals as wards. So this patchwork of rescue groups that operate under a guardianship model have little legal foundation to protect the animal's interests. So what do you do about this? Well, I, first of all, Frank, I've, I get Christmas cards and birthday cards from
3: the dogs. My dad has on his third golden retriever. The first one was named Guster after the gentleman who gave it to him, a friend of his from high school, Dr. Gil Guster down in Houston. Second one was Maverick after the Dallas Mavericks when dad lived in Dallas. And the one they have now is Fenway after Fenway Park. (laughs) I can't imagine. So I get get birthday cards all the time. So I I just think that a part of the family that I think that the true dog owners and cat owners are the same thing. They just – they're
2: part of the family. So you again use the term "owner," which suggests that they're that they're property, right? Do we need to look at expanding the rights that dogs have? I,
3: I would say we say rights. It's really the, the people that have uh, that take care of them and their responsibilities more so. I mean, at that point, because the dog's rights, how are they protect them? The people that take in pets and then, around the holidays, they're given as gifts. And that's when they get turned back into
2: shelters because they can't handle them. It was a great idea well, for Christmas for or for instance, something. Um, but you know, um, additional protections against their exploitation, I think, is what certain people would like. Uh, uh, you know, in New York, they just banned puppy mills, but they're still permitted in a lot of other states. Laboratory dogs—you can do experiments on dogs in legally in many for medical research and other things mm-hmm. in a lot of other parts of the state. Dog racing, right? You couldn't do that with, um, you know, with uh, with people, right? Should there be some sort of limited? personhood, as Burns puts it, that uh, that protects these dogs. Well, it, the dog racing is another conversation.
3: I mean, I, I have friends in, from college used to take in the, the dogs after they catch the rabbit. Mm-hmm. They can't race anymore. Mm-hmm. They don't put them down. They're, they're back out then. The greyhounds are out there for people to adopt. So, I mean, the longer that they're part of society and, and, and giving back, that's terrific stuff. I mean, there, there are emotional support dogs. There are dogs that do all kinds of things as far as people and, and when they're sick and and companionship. People that are alone. I've got friends that have 80-year-old parents who've
2: taken dogs and love it. It's like they're every morning taking a dog out or at night. They love it. So, so far, you and none of the listeners have disputed the findings that dogs' brains work like people and they respond to affection and language and not just treats. I'm curious, given your experience, you know, even with your cat allergy, do you think the same thing applies to cats? Yeah. I think do. The People I know have cats, sure. My sister's got a couple and
3: Growing up with my sisters, uh, she's eight years younger than me. But but uh, when she had the, the cat, a family of mine that took me in when I was seventeen, up in Ardsley, Lindsay's fantastic. She had a bunch of cats. Loved them, loved cats and dogs the whole time. Fantastic.
2: Some, someone just sent me an SMS text message, and if you want to send me an SMS text message, you can at eight one six eight Morano. Uh, she said that poodles are the smartest. That's why they used to create hybrids like Labradoodles. German shepherds are also very smart. So this person subscribes to that theory that different breeds are smarter than other breeds. Steve Wynn used to give his German shepherds. That shepherd makes her a poodle supremacist. <laughs> when I was at Steve Wynn's house, the one that got knocked down, you sent me this yeah, article. I'm going to talk to you about that next hour. But
3: Atlantic City, when I lived there, he would come to town and he'd bring his German shepherds. And he'd command them in German. And nobody else command him. <laughs> and you go around the house. You try to tell the dogs no. It was like you couldn't speak with them. I didn't speak the right language. So when I, you talk about understanding words, the previous caller, it, yes, they do. I, I Different don't know. Languages. I don't
2: know a lot of uh, cats that could uh, that could respond to people speaking German. Yes, they can. In Germany, they don't speak English too. I, I don't know. I'm skeptical. I don't. Know. I'm not sure the cats are quite as smart as history has made them out to be. Uh, let me say hello to Marie on Long Island. Hello, Marie. <laughs> I love dogs. My pit
14: bull's right here, my third rescue pit bull. And, and and the shelters are filled with more pit bulls than God knows how many. And they and they, and they do euthanize them. And you do get pets. for, And then you give them to the shelters and they kill them. Right, However, right. That's, yeah. Dogs are very smart. You know, I, I'm one poor. I'm one poor. Adopt and not shop. And and you talked about the puppy mills. Missouri is the capital of puppy mills. And if you could see what they do for profit, you see, we're trying to make animals, not just dogs and cats, there's horses that get abused. There's there's such it's anyway, it's a sick subject about when people hurt animals with me. But anyway, um if you say, do you want to, to my dog, yeah, you want to go for a walk, this dog will follow me around the house in the morning until I take him for his morning walk hmm. two miles.
3: <laughs> How does your dog He's let you best. know when they want to go outside?
14: They, if it's just the backyard, well, they, they put your head on your lap or something, but if it's the walk and he wants to go for the walk in the neighborhood for two miles. You know, when, he's like following me around the house. And I know soon I got to get dressed. I
3: got to get dressed. When Bryn, anyway, what? when Bryn came to the city, we had a problem because in Connecticut, yeah. she, when she had to go to the bathroom, when she didn't want to go out, she would. there was a bell hanging from the back door, <laughs> oh, a little a
2: tiny bell, and she would go Very to swipe good. it.
3: Yes. And in New York, I didn't have one them. Oh, so when she wanted to go out, we didn't know what to do.
2: That's very funny. Yeah. Uh, Marie, thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. By the way, if people want to see the uh, video that uh, Obi was showing me of uh, of his dogs, Bryn and Chi-Chi, uh, he has posted that video in the Facebook group. So you they are to, not, They're not mine. They're, well, they're I, dogs that you yeah, have a friend of mine for. Them. Yeah, oh, fantastic. Yes. Yes. Uh, you can go to facebook.com slash group slash radiomorano. That's facebook.com slash group slash radiomorano. If
3: I meet a woman she has a cat. I can't date her because at some point she's gonna have to choose between the cat and me,
2: and I'm never gonna win that. <laughs> that's one. That's it, one. Uh, it, one choice. My my. It, I've never would ask my wife to make. And if me. I came home one day and they had a cat, I would know they're breaking up with me. <laughs> you know, someone else just texted me. Cats are the only animal that kill for the sake of killing. And you know, to to this person's point, there was an incident in our old apartment where the three cats that we have they were gathered around the head of a bird that they had murdered. Now, I don't think they ate the bird. I think they just killed him for, or her for sport. And, uh, you know, I don't know how many dogs would be doing that. suspect very few. 808 848 222 Squirrels. Dogs want the squirrels. That's, I guess they do. Pamela is in New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Uh,
15: hello. Hello. Um, to prove your study... Uh, about emotions, and I do definitely. want to be clear:
2: it's not my study. It's uh, Professor Burns from, uh, you know, from uh, from the school that I alluded to. Uh, it's Emory University.
15: Well, that you discussed, right? Um, they also have the ability to make conscious decisions about their emotional status. There was a story last month, which is amazing. This dog was in a shelter for a long time. Nobody adopted him. And then finally somebody adopted him over 10 miles away. But this dog fell in love with the shelter workers. And even though he was probably in a crate most of the time, you know, of course, he went for walks and they they treated him well. He traveled over 10 miles to get back to the shelter and sat by the door. Yeah, yeah, it was amazing. You can find it. I think Fox News had it online. You can uh, a dog that traveled over 10 miles back to a shelter, so th- they have the ability to make conscious decisions also about who they like and who they, you know, don't like as
2: much. <laughs> that, that's interesting. I feel bad for the guy that took him in. Oh my, yeah. I mean, boy, talk about a a damaged ego. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hannah's in the boogie down Bronx. Hello. Hi,
16: it's Hannah, the Cat Lady, But I want to talk about my dog. Um, mm-hmm. How you guys doing, Obi? Great, thank you. Um, how you doing? Great. Yeah, um, I actually have a service dog that I sued the MTA with. If you look up my name, uh, Hannah Josiah versus MTA, I sued the MTA a couple of years ago for the service dog rights in New York City. So they could board buses and subway. Uh, MTA did not recognize that my dog was a service dog. Mm. Because it's not particularly yeah, I'm case. reading this it's Daily expensive. News
2: article from seven years you ago about mean. your case. So you won this case?
16: Yeah, yeah I did. Wow. And uh, yeah, uh, I I went to Eastern District Court. Um, I won the case, and now um, MTA cannot discriminate whatsoever with animals um, like uh, dogs, and then they they cannot say uh, people cannot go on buses and subway. I just want to say that. Um, my my dear Jasper, he passed away. Um, I have a new wow. service dog. Her name's Luna. And um, she, you know, I had to, you know, they, the MTA said that I had to have this dog uh, to be trained. Now, I want to say something really important. Um, you know, there is no so, such an ID available in the city of New York for service dogs. And, you know, I get discriminated all the time. No kidding. I live in the Bronx. They're very much discriminatory towards my service animal. I would have an idea for the city of New York to um, help people like me who have a service dog to be identi- you know, identified instead of one of those fake counterfeit service dog vests. I'm thinking, you know those IDNYC cards mm-hmm. they about, out? Right. Yes. Why don't they get put... Service dogs are uh, included in the ID card. You know what I'm saying? The ID NYC represents all New Yorkers. What well, if a person has a service dog? Why don't they mention that on the ID NYC? Don't you already have you know? some
3: ID for a service dog, though? Is there something you already got? I
16: could. Well, you know the thing is, when I saw the MTA um, before, prior to suing them, they didn't provide me the service dog MTA ID card there's such a card identifying that my dog is a service dog. And because where I got discriminated mostly in the Bronx, the the bus operators would discriminate me, and they said that my uh, Jack Russell Corky mix is not a service dog. But when I went to court, i proven it to them, and even though he was not trained by a trainer, I trained him myself. And he was well uh he passed the uh the MTA ADA um you know uh, test. So, you know, they, they couldn't say that he was not a service dog, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had this dog uh I had this dog Jasper for like uh seven years. And he was a rescue dog and when I got him I had to train him. But you know, he was pretty he was so beautiful it, uh, um, had, I,
2: I, have, I have to run yeah. thank you We're way late here i appreciate uh, it uh it's service dogs service important part I mean that's part of
3: they're even service dogs sometimes you don't
2: even realize emotional support and other things completely agree 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on this or anything else in just a moment uh, Obi Murray is uh, sticking around with us for the whole program you can comment on anything that we've covered thus far in just a moment we're going to talk a little bit about aging how you're aging and how maybe you shouldn't be aging we'll get into it in just a moment this is the other side of midnight straight ahead the
0: Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
2: Frank Marano. Ain't nothing but a This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Murano. Uh, joined for the duration of the program by the inimitable O.B. Murray. One of the discussions that we've been having regularly on this show has been about aging. Fascinating analysis published in the journal Nature said some very interesting things um, as we get older. We have some control over how quickly our brains age. So in this analysis in nature, scientists studied brain scans of all ages from 16 months to 100 years old. And to learn more about what happens to our brains throughout our lives. Here's the key takeaway. A 50-year-old who is highly social and regularly exercising, traveling, or volunteering might just have a younger brain than a 50-year-old who is largely isolated from others and rarely engages in enriching activities. Now, it's not just exercise and eating right. Learning new things, enjoying time with friends, enjoying time with family, pursuing hobbies can keep our brains young. Scientists have also unearthed all sorts of details about our brains at other ages. And here are some nuggets from the Washington Post, which uh, a caller, Rich or Rick, can tell you the 100 year history of. One study suggests that the way our brains process emotions and make decisions after we cross the age of 65 is what makes older people, with their decades of life experience, wiser. They actually analyze the physiology of wisdom. Babies' brains are like sponges. So in the first year or so, babies can learn any language, uh, for instance. Young adulthood is often thought of as the peak for brain development. But evidently, according to this data, we're not done changing and growing in our mid to late 20s. Instead, our brains' priorities just change to make way for the new types of thinking we'll do in our later years. I thought this was pretty interesting. If you want to comment on the aging process or the physiology of wisdom or anything related to that, 800-848-9222. I, I think,
3: Frank, it's all about how you act, and you act with who you hang out with at times. If you hang out with people who smoke pot, you're going to smoke pot. If you hang out with people who are younger, you will be more active and, and, and more vibrant and so forth. The hours you keep at night at times impact that. Your sleep habits, things of that sort. Oh, my scotch and cigars don't ruin things too much. (laughs) My dad, when I went to visit him a few years ago prior to COVID, we're down at the beach, Atlantic Beach, North Carolina. And I took a bunch of cigars, my Cubans, that I have every now and then. And after about a day or two of being there with him, I ran out of cigars. The man is 80 years old now, and he smokes four to six cigars a day. We play golf, and he's still chomping away, having a great time.
2: I really don't view 80, and maybe this is, I don't know, naive of the fact, or a reflection of the fact that most of my peers are older. I really don't view 80 as that old these days. A, a friend
3: of mine in Vermont, the guy that's been up there forever, Jack Ryan, 90 years old. He'll be 90 years old. Last year, he drove down from here to South Carolina during the whole day. I had dinner with him that night. We shut down the restaurant. And stayed out.
2: Oh, no. I, 90 I, years old in a car all day from New York and then out all night. Uh, no, I am uh, not the least bit surprised by that. You know, one person that I uh, hang around with a little bit um, with uh, my friend Arthur Idala mostly is Geraldo Rivera, who's now 79 years old. This guy is uh, – he has more energy and more youthful exuberance than the two of us combined. He was in I mean, great honestly. shape with
3: that towel picture, I recall.
2: <laughs> he still is, honestly. I bet. He's still in phenomenal shape, works out like crazy, but even more so – I'm i am not even talking about physically. The mental acuity is so is so strong. The only person really more impressive than someone like uh, Geraldo Rivera is someone like William Shatner. Now, when I spoke with William Shatner back in January – and I can tell you firsthand, observing him for two straight nights, spending four hours straight with him both nights, the guy is just remarkable. He He's not only quick-witted, he's physically quick he's intellectually sharp he's showing me how to work a kindle i don't know how to work a kindle and yet he's giving me a lesson on how to download books on a kindle uh so we spoke it was ironic that one of the films that that we were talking about was star trek to the wrath of Khan, because one of the films one of the film's themes if you haven't seen it is aging and we spoke a little bit about aging and what it's meant for him
1: things like skiing Uh, Some years ago, I face-planted in some—I used to be a a really good skier. I skied uh, for my high school team and racing, and I brought my children into skiing, and I loved the winters. But I couldn't get out of this face plant, and people had to uh, help me out of it. And I thought to myself, what would happen if there weren't weren't some people coming by to help me get up out of this uh, 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 wet snow? Uh, I've heard of um, snowboarders hitting a bank of snow and unable to get out uh, died. Uh, It would be like being buried in an avalanche. And uh, getting up uh, onto your feet from when you're, you know, I've fallen and I can't get up. Mm. Well, you've fallen and you can't get up not because you've hurt yourself, but because getting up is a physical act that you can no longer do. Your legs are no longer strong enough to get you up. Now, that isn't the case, and that isn't so in my case, but that's that can happen.
2: I, I have to tell you, as a, as a 92-year-old, it was remarkably impressive just to watch. <laughs> Frank, it. you're not a skier, but that can happen at any age. Really?
3: Oh, I, I've been out in the powder out, out in Utah uh, and had the same problem Because he says he still rides horses and stuff. <laughs> yeah, it's great. I mean, it's terrific stuff. Riding a horse is different than skiing, though. Right. But your legs get burnt and so forth. Bob Turner still skis. Spoke to
2: him last year about it. So when we, Bob's eighty years old now. Given this conversation, given this uh, analysis published in the Nature, the in Nature, given the anecdotal observations that you've had and I've had of people like uh, Ernie Anastas, Geraldo Rivera, uh, Cindy Adams, William Shatner, certainly uh, just yesterday Ralph Nader. Do you think maybe society needs to rethink some of these jobs that have Eight mandatory retirement ages. You know, um, for instance, there's uh, in New York State, you can't be, and I think it's true in Jersey as well, you can't be a judge over the age of 70. You can get three, two years extensions if you're a Supreme Court justice, but you can't get elected a judge after 70. Uh, is it time to rethink some the of those? The church is after the cardinal. Well, well the same, that, yeah. same thing. And there, there's a, the job is very different than anything else
3: are talking about. I think th- that's much more organizational, and in this case, electoral, and, and what what they want for that. But at some point, if you didn't have that, when would you have them retire? You'd raise it to 75, you'd raise it to 80. Well, and what does that do to everyone else working their way up? It's well, up or out? Well, is what you got to do. But,
2: but so maybe the voters should be the ones to make that determination. For instance, look, the most likely matchup for 2024 is a Trump-Biden matchup. You're going to have an 82-year-old against a 78-year-old. And the voters are going to make that decision. Maybe somebody else in the primaries if they don't like Biden or Trump. But if neither of those guys would be able to be – and I know Trump's not an attorney, but let's pretend for the sake of argument that he is – Neither of those guys would be eligible to be elected to be a New York State Supreme Court justice. Now, what sense does that make, that we could vote for these guys for president but not to be a judge in New York? I think I – think
3: I, I don't have a problem with that for electoral politics having an age limit because in New York and other places, they really get entrenched – and, and to oust an incumbent and what happens? And these terms are not two-year terms, Frank. These are seven-year term, 14, uh, yeah, terms, fifteen-year uh, term, ten-year for civil, fourteen-year for supreme. Long, right? long terms. I mean, you're talking about quite a bit. And to get the extensions, maybe something to so get elected and so forth, and, and then get the extension beyond a certain age. I don't have a problem with that. And they don't forget in the federal side, what they do is they become. Uh, retired, but they still sit and they pick up other cases. That may be a way to do it. You take their expertise. They don't work as much. They take a pay cut. The judicial system has has too many cases now that aren't being dealt with. There's a way to deal with it. And then it's
2: handled on a case by case basis by the senior judge. Well, some of the um, judges that attain senior status don't work as much. Others do. For instance, Jack Weinstein, well into his 90s, he had retained senior status and he chose to work just as hard as uh, as he did, you know, 20, 30 years ago in New Jersey. There's a state senator, Sam Thompson, 87 years old, um, conservative Republican, incredible voting record, very sharp guy. And the Republican leadership in Trenton, they made clear that they were going to ditch him For no other reason other than his advanced age. And initially he said, well, now I'm going to run as a Democrat. I'll show you. And uh, it was clear he was still just as vibrant mentally as ever. He accused his opponents of trying to do a Soylent Green to him. Now, ultimately, he's decided he's not going to run for re-election for a host of reasons. But I thought it was terrible. I'm all for term limits, but... I thought it was terrible what the Republican leadership in the Senate was doing, basically not giving this guy any reason that they wouldn't back him anymore, but for his age. Yeah, age shouldn't be the
3: sole determinator in that situation. If it's if it's a set rule or law, yes, then you stick with it. But in that situation, that's basically discrimination. At that point, I mean, how was he mentally? He was fine, right? He was working right. the same. He, bit. he I mean,
2: challenged the Senate leader to a hike or a competitive hike or a mental acuity exam.
3: Bob Turner had a great answer on time, on term limits talking about age and so forth, he says, I've got a wife and I've got a God. They'll decide for me. And and he was 70 years old at the time. Between the two, he wasn't going to serve – for a long time.
2: Right. No, again, I'm for term limits at, for people, um, you know, at any age. You know, when Chuck Schumer was elected to the state assembly at 24 years old, I'd be for him serving the same 12 years as someone that was elected at 74. What I'm not for is arbitrary age limits. I think when it comes to electoral politics, that uh, the voters should be the ones making the determination, especially in light of uh, this study in the journal Nature, which shows that, um, you know, there are so many different factors in how people age, and a 70-year-old brain isn't necessarily older than a 50-year-old brain if you take the right care of it. It's, it's wiser, too, from what you said earlier. Right, right. I mean, there, is, there is value.
3: There's no question about it. But there are norms. There are things that you knew when you took the job. You, uh, my stepfather was at Sherman Sterling. There was mandatory retirement. He stayed on his, of counsel,
2: and that's perfectly fine. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. What did you make of the – Nikki Haley's suggestion that uh, that candidates over the age of 75 for president should have to take a a mental examination. Uh,
3: I think I actually sent that into you and you read it in in the mail. Right. uh, I said it to you in general. You read it. It's fine. It's fine by me. It's constitutional. It's not constitutional. You have to pass constitutional amendment to start doing that. It's just no difference than when people want Donald Trump's taxes and they want to make it mandatory for anyone running for president for taxes. Uh, right now you have S- uh, Santos. Is he an American citizen or not? We believe he is. They had the issue with President Obama mm-hmm. when he had, we had the birth certificate issue. I mean these things come up. If the, it's not in the Constitution, you're not going to change it. So, Nick, she can talk about it. What she's doing there is taking a shot at Biden, but also comes back at, at Donald Trump.
2: Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure how that's going to work out for her in the long run. 800-848-9222. Larry's in Brooklyn. He's been patiently holding. Hello, Larry. Frank, can I comment on the dog uh, issue? Be my guest, Larry. Be my guest.
5: Okay, I had I had a really really amazing experience, which proves that uh, William Burns, I would qualify his hypothesis: dogs respond to affection. Gregory. Gregory Burns, but not the way humans show it. They respond to affection the way dogs show affection. Like, for, let me tell you what happened. There was a there was a Yorkie that one of my neighbors had that would literally leap into your arms and start licking your face. So I love dogs. I grab this dog. I start nuzzling it and its head fit perfectly between my chin and my chest. And I and I squeezed down on its head real hard. And then I said, oh my, it must've not liked that, because maybe it felt like its head was crushed. So I let it go, and instead of wiggling out of my arms, it turned to me affectionately, and looked at me like, daddy! And I said to him, I said, this was very, very scary experience. I never, I, I realized I connected with that dog on a whole new level because I've had dogs my whole life. And this dog, I showed the animal affection the way another animal would have shown an affection, and it responded. So the answer is uh, that it does not respond to human signs of affection, but its own dog's signs of affection. I've... And and we're mistaking everything else for just loyalty. And its own basic
2: sense of goodness
5: uh, coming from us.
2: Well, hey, well said, Larry. I appreciate the uh, the observation uh, very much. I uh, no, I, I think that's very. I think that's very sound. Now, let me let me go ahead. I, I wonder how many years ago that was because you still talk about that story, right? I mean, and right. that's the joy they bring. They bring memories. They bring all these terrific, terrific feelings. The uh, l- let me ask you about somebody that's 104 years old. Uh, actually, I think technically he might now be one hundred and six years old, depending on how you count and that is one of the most uh, iconic um, advertising mascots of all time, and that is Mr. Peanut or uh, as they went call him on Seinfeld Neil. After Planters ran its Super Bowl commercial on Fox showing Mr. Peanut as the subject of a celebrity roast, a lot of you probably saw it, there was a longer version of the roast that appeared on Fox's streaming platform, Tubi. The deal marked the first time that Tubi included advertiser-created content as entertainment, and the long version of this Mister Peanut roast was part of a two B total takeover on February thirteenth. Now, uh, there is a way to watch this online. I'm going to link to it on my Facebook page. You can watch it at uh, facebookcom MoranoFan. Here's uh, a clip of it. I'll make this quick, Mister Peanut. I know you got some brownies to ruin. <laughs> Seriously, thank you for taking a break from hiding under my couch cushions to be here. I think that was Jeff Ross, who was also in the uh, William Shatner uh, roast that I recently watched from 2006. But they had a whole bunch of comedians line up and make jokes uh, about Mr. Peanut, just as if he was a person. Anyway, Mr. Peanut, I'm a big fan. I love your work in Thai
17: food.
5: (laughs) Without you, Jelly wouldn't even have a career. Am I right, folks?
2: I thought this was pretty creative and pretty fun. Mr. Peanut, I know you'll be at the after party because you're on the guest list and the menu. Who's hungry? All right, um, Obi, as a uh, somebody with experience in marketing, communications, branding, what do you think of the idea of this Mister Peanut roast? We're talking about it, and I think, if, as, as you said, it took over part of the the internet at that point,
3: went a little viral. I, I was saying before the show when you when we were looking at it, they almost missed the, the opportunity. It's a friar's roast; mm-hmm. they're a little bit dirty, a little risque. Of course, their brand that to be careful, but it was the right opportunity. I mean, you've got a nut. You've got the Friars Club, and you've got women making jokes. There are so many things they could have done that would have been in good taste and I think could have had other value of, of visibility and, and credibility with them and, and gotten even
2: more of more, more PR out of the whole thing. It's, we're talking about it, so it's working. Uh, d- did you find it entertaining, or you found it... Uh... I got tired of it after about two minutes. Okay, so I you... never asked you where
3: the highlights were. Where should I go?
2: <laughs> um, but if people want to see it and judge for themselves, I thought it was a nice tribute uh, to Mr. Peanut. I, I, I thought it was a shame when Mr. Peanut was killed off briefly. It turned out he wasn't really killed off. It was just a marketing ploy uh, by planters, which I thought was very clever. But um, I, I've always been very protective of Mr. Peanut. I like his whole... Class act kind of a deal. I I he, he exudes gentlemanliness. What's your other
3: brand of, of of peanuts?
2: I mean, I'm I'm a fan of pistachios too. I mean that's terrific. Yeah, I like pistachios but, also. Yeah, they're terrific. A lot well, of work other get, than but... planters, what is a brand of peanuts? Right. I don't know. There's the, uh Diamond was one for almonds, right? See, they don't but, have a good mascot.
3: But that's also almonds, more so than peanuts. Yeah. Well, that's fair. Eight hundred
2: eight four eight ninety two twenty two. 848 Uh this is the, the hey, did you watch any of it, Matt Plays? You're usually a pretty good judge of uh of humor.
0: Of oh, the roast? Yeah. No, I didn't see any of it. I didn't know.
2: Yeah, okay. Well, I, I'm going to watch it, was, it now. I, I thought it was interesting. If S- people want to watch time,
3: it. You, did, 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 two minutes was enough for
2: me. <laughs> you, you
3: had enough on the highlights. You're good.
2: <laughs> if people want to watch it, they go to Facebook.com slash fan. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Murano.
1: Fairy tales can come true It can happen to you If you're young at heart For it's hard you will find To be narrow of mind If you're young at heart. The
2: great Frank Sinatra singing Young at Uh, Heart. This is Frank Morano. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Joined this morning by the great Obi Murray, um, not only a veteran political consultant and communications strategist, but also a military veteran. You know, Obi, it's no secret. You listen to the program. You know we um, delve a lot into the world of uh, UFOs. And so much of the discussions that I've had with UFO researchers, UFO journalists, documentarians, whomever, it does deal with the world of the military. There's always the suspicion on the part of some that maybe the Pentagon isn't telling the full truth about what they know and what they have and what they've seen. Uh, give me your take or your observations anecdotally or otherwise on this well, whole UFO When I was situation. in El Paso
3: at Fort Bliss, White Sands is right there. When you go over to New Mexico. So it was nearby. There was talk about it and stuff. We never knew much about it and so forth back then. I mean that was in the 90s. But uh, I've only heard much more about it since listening to your show and talking with you and so forth. Um, it's incredibly educational in, in listening to this. And I think uh, – was it last night or the night before when you had a guest on who talked about what movies he was doing mm-hmm. and, and the, what he talks about and his test about if it went – the bar test I think it was. Right. If you walk into a bar right. – I mean, that was that was phenomenal. That's a brilliant way of looking at it. Yeah, it, it adds credibility to what he's doing.
2: No, I, I concur. Let me play for you this. Um, a woman that works here at the radio station. Great person. She's young. She's dynamic. She's energetic. Very intelligent. Very talented. I wish she worked on our show, uh, but she, she works in the social media department. And that's not a dig at these guys. I mean, trust me. She's this- better looking. These guys, I hope. Uh- <laughs> <laughs> Not Ken, but everybody else, yes. Um, there's um, there's uh, a lot of work to do, but she works in the graphics department. Her name's Gina Limbaropoulos. Does a great job, uh, very talented. Listen to an experience uh, that she had recently, and then I want you to comment on this.
13: So as most of us know, there's been a lot of strange and unusual stuff going on in the world as of late, like spy balloons, acid rain, and, you know, the intergalactic war brewing above our heads every day. Yeah, well, I got a story for you. A little over a week ago, I was driving home from the city with my dad. I want to say it was around 30, 9 o'clock at night. Looked up at the sky, and I saw a large triangular object with blinking lights floating over the trees on the side of the highway. This was not a plane, and it was close enough for me to see the details of it, and it stayed just in one spot. It was really, really weird. Naturally, I was bugging, of course. So my dad looks over, starts bugging out too, because he also sees the same thing. Uh, and about a half a mile down the highway, boom, an identical one, literally the same exact thing. It looks exact, but it's not the same thing. There were two of them just floating over the trees. Didn't know what to do. I tried taking a photo of it. It's ridiculously blurry, but you can clearly see a big glowing white light just floating in the middle of the sky. Uh, But it gets weirder. So the next morning I wake up and I'm doing my little news reports for social media as usual. And JFK canceled flights the same night I saw it. And I was only about 30 minutes away from the city in Westchester. So do with that info as you will.
2: What do you make of that? I thought that was pretty... This is someone I know who's very credible.
13: I, I actually
3: mentioned it earlier, I have a friend in Connecticut. Same thing. I got pictures. I'll put them on Facebook. But pictures and a video of it, and there's two together. Are they drones or what's going on? Uh, I mean, they're up there quite a bit, and that's just, this is Fairfield, Connecticut. So right where we are, I'm not sure where she is.
2: I'm curious if anybody else has seen it. 800-848-9222. Until next hour, this is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Welcome to a radio program that is unlike any other. Any other in America, as far as I'm concerned. And uh, I am very, very pleased to to tell you that this is the first edition of this program on which we are being heard on a terrific radio station, a great radio station, a radio station that I listen to regularly on almost a daily basis, uh, WOND in Atlantic City, Talk 1400, a terrific station which I've been on many times um, and it's it's uh, a station that features my friend AC Mike Lopez. Uh, it features the legendary Hall of Famer Don Williams off the press with Scott Chronic, who's been a regular guest on this show, and we are very my friend Rich Valdez at night, and we are very very pleased to be part of the uh, the lineup at uh, W O N D. Very apropos uh, because I am joined this hour by a gentleman that has quite a history in Atlantic City. He is a noted political consultant, but he's done a lot of other things, including working for Steve Wynn and Steve Wynn's footprint in Atlantic City, E. O'Brien Murray, or as we call him, Obi. Hello, Obi. Hey, Frank. Great to be here, as always. Yeah. So what did you do for Steve Wynn in Atlantic so, City?
3: Yeah, we were talking before about when I got out of the Army and went, went into politics. But I, my whole life has been real estate and politics. I made a real estate license when I was 18, before I went to college. Uh, and with Steve, it was development work and the political side. So we went to Atlantic City, The Connector. For the Brigada, the Brigantine connector—that was what we had done. The three hundred thirty million dollar roadway. When I worked for Steve, when I got there, there was stories in the paper saying it wouldn't be done. Uh, and when I left, it was being done. I went over from there to Hilton, did the same thing. And Hilton, I did the uh, the monorail that we did the extension from MGM to the uh, to Bally's. That got extended out to the Hilton, and then also the uh, the overpass out there where you, the pedestrian overpass that went from Bellagio to Bally's at the four corner there where Caesars is and the Flamingo and uh, Barbary Coast. So around, taking the government affairs side of the house and the real estate side and put them all together. What, what's Steve Wynn like on a personal level? I, he's terrific. He's, you know, he is also, like any other guy, is very demanding. I mean, all the stories that I mm. you hear, can't believe them all necessarily, but a lot of times it's very demanding, like anyone else that's reached that level. You don't get to that, that level without being demanding.
2: Did you think he got a raw deal in that whole Me Too situation?
3: I, I can't really speak to – I didn't see that pers- that right. side specifically. You always hear rumors about people in any walk of life about different things, but there was nothing overt that I ever came across when I was around it. Um, but you know, the women are saying it, and whatever is going on is going on. He uh, is no longer the chairman of the company. He's not involved in the gaming industry. And,
2: and for a time, he was the finance chairman of the Republican Party as well, right?
3: Yeah, that was after – uh, it was after that, still though. No, 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 no. Was, they, they bounced him. No, back. There, there was a point, but there was a point he was still around them then to not as chairman, but other things with it as well. Yeah,
2: but, uh, but uh, it's certainly, it's certainly interesting to uh, look back at uh, his role but, in Atlantic City, including building something like the Borgata. But learning or playing from him a role, in building something like the Borgata. I,
3: I lived at his house in Atlantic City for a year and a half in Ventnor.
2: Uh, They just knocked the house down, apparently, right?
3: You showed me the clip. Yeah, it was was amazing. I I lived there for 18 months. It was terrific. Yeah,
2: that's wild. Well, uh, honored to be on uh, WOND because there is not a radio show in America that talks more about –
5: on one more chance:
2: yeah, there's not a radio show in America that talks more about Atlantic City than uh, than this one and uh, coming up we're going to talk with uh, Congressman Jeff Van Drew the congressman that represents Atlantic City he really got known nationwide uh, due to the uh, party switch that he did as a result of not wanting to impeach Donald Trump he was a conservative Democrat now I guess you'd characterize him as a uh, liberal Republican and uh, I'm a big fan of. Jeff Andrew, and a lot of people have some concerns about what's happening with the whales out there, in that uh, the whales that keep washing up on the beach, there's been, I think, 10 in New York and New Jersey since December, and some people are tying this to the issue of offshore wind development. He's called for a moratorium, so we're going to get into that in a uh, in a big way in just a bit. You have any take on uh, what we're seeing with the whales? No,
3: I, I've, I know what I've heard of the show most for most of the information I've gotten there, I think actually, when he, went, when he ran as a Republican the first time, he ran against Patrick Kennedy's wife. If I'm not mistaken. That's right. You Amy the, Kennedy. Amy, And actually, Patrick was a classmate of mine at Providence College. Well,
2: actually, that was for re-election the first time. The first time he won as a Democrat, right. he beat Seth Grossman, right. who's been on this show. Then the second time, he beat Amy Kennedy, in, uh, and then uh, and then he just got re-elected again last year. But the year.
3: second time, he ran as a Republican.
2: First time was as a Democrat. Right. Democrat, he's won right. once, tw- a Dem- and uh, Republican But never it was clients.
3: interesting, Patrick Kennedy being the former congressman in the Kennedy family, his wife then running for Congress.
2: All right. That well, was- that yeah, she did not have his uh, same good fortune when it came to electoral success. All right. There is an Internet debate that has erupted over two identical bowls of pasta. On February 18th, President Joe Biden and the first lady, Jill Biden, stepped out of the White House. And we're not talking about the White House sub shop, but the, the actual White House for an intimate dinner for two at an Italian-American restaurant called Red Hen in Washington, D.C. Now, this these two go out to eat pretty often, sometimes with other presidential couples. But what made tongues wag was not where they went out to eat, but what they ordered. According to a February 21st article in Washingtonian Magazine, the Bidens ordered a couple of glasses of wine, grilled bread with cultured butter, chicory salad, and two orders of rigatoni with sausage. That's the restaurant's signature dish, you know, for dinner. The Mezzi rigatoni is a $24 dish with tomato, fennel sausage, ragu, uh, pecorino romano, And it seems like an unconventional thing to order on a date night, but the idea that they both ordered the exact same thing stirred up quite a debate on Twitter. Jessica Sidman, there are two types of couples in this world, those who order the same dish at a restaurant and those who would never, ever dare. I would definitely glare at my husband if he ordered the same thing as me because Obviously, we need to try as much of the menu as possible. I have to tell you, and this has nothing to do with politics, I completely agree with the critics of Biden's on this. I am so obsessive that if I'm out, I will always insist that I am the last person to order at a restaurant, and I will never order the same thing at a restaurant that anyone else at the table has ordered. I don't care if there's four people at the table or 20 I will not get the same thing that any – obviously, if it's a pre dinner and there's only three choices, it's a different situation. But a conventional restaurant menu, if you can get uh, – I will never, ever order the same thing as anyone else there. I think it's outrageous that you have a couple, let alone the presidential couple, the first couple, that's ordering the same dish as one another. You ever go to a restaurant, Frank? You don't get a menu? They just
3: serve you the food? The chef? Yeah. Well, Rayos is like that. That's terrific. That's the way to go. Yeah. Well, so you like the whole family style thing then. Oh, parts of it, but not just family style, but even there's a restaurant up in Vermont I go to called The Back Room. Chef is from New York. One menu, one seating, 24 people, two tables of 12. And the chef just serves a menu every night. It's different. Trip
2: Whitbeck uh, said, I have honestly never heard of a couple, married or otherwise, who order the exact same thing at a restaurant. I find this very bizarre. I find this very peculiar. And I'm curious if... You do this. Do you, if you're in a married couple, do you order the same thing as your husband or wife? Even if you're not married, if you're in a regular couple, do you go to a restaurant and order the same thing? No. You get two different things and you share. You get a scoop, even if you don't share it half and half, you get a scoop of what they're having. They get a scoop of what you're having. You gotta try to. What different are the things? rules?
3: What are your rules on sharing with you and your wife? You go to dinner and you order and you get your plate and she gets her plate. Well, what I, happens right, next?
2: Okay, I'm gonna give you my my And I'm hoping she's not listening at this point in the show. I'm going to give you my sort of trick technology here. I um always want to try what she's having. Always, right? Now, I know that she, she doesn't like mushrooms. So I order something with mushrooms because I know she's not going to want to try it. So whatever I get... There's mushrooms in it. So she will give me some of hers, but I am saved from giving her some of mine because I know she doesn't eat mushrooms. You get to
3: feel more solid at the scapa- scapolitis. Yeah.
2: Well, whatever it is, whatever it, I don't eat feel. Mushrooms can be picked out easily. Those are easy to pick I, out. Yeah, well, sometimes she does have a bite of whatever I'm having. I'm being somewhat flippant, but no, she orders first and I will absolutely never order the same thing. If I'm considering ordering the same thing and she gets that, boom, I'm going to my second choice. I never decide what I'm ordering until the very last second because I have, um, maybe it's an indication of problems with decision-making or something else, but I have a real problem in terms of Making a decision about what to order, it, I, it tortures me. So I, what I do is I cl- narrow it down to five or six choices, I close the menu, and whatever my instinct tells me when the waiter asks for the order, that's where I'm going. So
3: if we're eating and I order what you wanted, I get something else.
2: You just That's it. And what, what if what? I don't share? You're well, gonna, are
3: you going to pick up my plate when we're eating? Is that what you're doing? No.
2: I, I mean, we've been out to to lunch or <laughs> yeah. something. I don't think we have shared, but... What I still like to see it. I like to smell it. I like to know. It's like that Robert Frost poem, The poem, the Road Not Taken. I like to see that's what the food would have at least looked and smelled like because that's a big part of the culinary experience. It is, but if you want that savory taste of no, something,
3: no, you're, you're going to rob yourself of that excitement. I'll, I'll never
2: forget. I must have been maybe 10 or 11 years old, and I went out to dinner with uh, my mom Uh, and a fellow that she was dating at the time. Great guy, a nice uh, fellow named Paul. And um, (laughs) this is how I I was even as a kid. And if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222. We go out to eat, and one of them (laughs) orders what I was going to order. And look, I was a mature 10-year-old, but one of them ordered the same thing that I was going to (laughs) order, and I started crying. And you're mature. Yeah, because I thought I was, but I couldn't bear... The fact that my order was now ruined. Well, how was it ruined? You could have order the same thing. Well that's what Paul Paul said. He said, Look, I was out to dinner with a bunch of guys the other night. Five or six of us ordered steak. No one cared. Now, how long were they
3: going out when you did this? I don't I don't remember. Because the question is, if Paul would have said, You want here you go,
2: he'd get something else.
3: That's what he could yeah. that's
2: depending upon where I, you were. I, I don't remember I may have even been nine, but I I remember it so vividly, I think I must have been When you
3: when you're the, the boyfriend of the mother and the kids there there's all kinds of things you would do you never thought you would do for that kind of stuff.
2: Yeah, well, I, I guess that's uh, I guess that's true. But uh, the point is, I would never order the same thing ever. But some people disagree. Elise Notoriani, um said in response to this whole debate, "Guys, I 100% order the same dish as my fiance because I'll be damned if I don't get the food I want just because he wants it to." So, uh, do you you order the same thing as your? I order neuroso- what I want. I, I, if, if it
3: I'll works w- out, I'll order what I want, but. At the same time, if, if she wants that or something, we'll balance it off. There's a couple things we want and do do it a share. But the thing, too, if you recall from your dating days, Frank, it's always a first date question when you're out for a meal. When you go to order, everyone has their own ways of thinking about things. And I remember hearing stories from buddies of mine or from their wives actually at times where, yeah, I reached across the first time we went out and grabbed something from his plate. He, he wouldn't touch the plate afterwards. He switched the plate. Are you kidding? No, that, that's, that's crazy. No, that was a first date. He was like, Don't, what are you doing on this get, stuff. I get where he's coming she didn't from. Even a-
2: she I, didn't even ask. No, well, that's not right. But i that's the kind of person that you that you, if that was me and you know my passive aggressive style, if that was me, and I think I've been in this position before, I would politely sit and stew and eat my meal, but I would say I cannot believe I'm sitting here with this woman. When am I done with this uh and i I, I never see that woman they've yet. been married for more, nearly thirty years. oh well, see, worked out for them eight hundred eight four eight nine two 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 Where do you come down on this? Are you with me and the Twitter mob? And never ordering the same thing as your partner? Or are you with uh, other people that say it's fine? Uh, that, uh, that people can order the same thing as their, as their significant other, and that's no problem. Uh, this one person commented, people are going on about them ordering the same thing, but if you've had the ragu there, you'd understand. So maybe that's their specialty, maybe that's it's, what they're it's known It's
3: actually for. known all over D.C. for that. Really? Have you uh, been to this I restaurant? I have not, but I've heard people talk about it and say it's safe
2: 800 uh, Let me say hello to Bob in Manhattan. Hello, Bob.
7: Hi, Frank. Listen, I'm not married, and I prefer Italian food above any other type of food. And when the family goes out, we usually go to an Italian restaurant. And we all order different things, except my sister in law which drives me nuts. Because every time we go to a restaurant, she orders the same thing. Chicken, cutlet, parmesan, and spaghetti. So about the third or fourth time, I said to her, don't you want to try anything else? And I started rec- recommending things like veal scallopini, salted vodka. And she goes, oh, what if I don't like it? So I said, well, order something else. Right. And well, she's like, she was like so
2: hesitant to like get out of this box. She's been like in with chicken cutlet parmesan. Yeah, that is what we call, and thank you, Bob. That dilemma is what we call in Seinfeldian academic circles, Banya's uh, Banya's dilemma, which is, do you go to something, you know, that will be good Mendy's or do you go somewhere new, which would be different, but maybe not as good. That's the dilemma we all wrestle with at times. 800 Would you ever order as the Bidens did the same identical dish? I would I would scream. I would go nuts. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul.
5: Hey, Frank, good morrow. <laughs> Listen, this is the silliest thing I've ever heard of in my life. Who cares if he's ordered the same thing? You're crazy. I respect you. I love your show, Frank. I think you're very smart. But I think this is very silly, like you would, uh, like you make such a big deal about. This. My wife and I, we've ordered the same thing. Sometimes you just like the way something sounds, you order it. Paul,
2: Sometimes you order different. Paul, knowing what I know about Paul, you, that doesn't surprise me at all. Paul, and I think in the case of you, in your case and Biden's, it might be an indication of severe psychosis. I, I
5: might, I might, I don't put me in the same category hey, as Biden. I, I didn't,
2: Paul. You and your wife did. The next presidential dinner I read about, it's going to be a double date. Yeah. The, the the Pauls and the Bidens. Thank you, Paul. I, I agree with Paul Frank because you're not even you're not
3: sacrificing. You're punishing yourself. Yes, you have that savory taste. I am now. I am punishing myself. I asked about before we how, how long they'd been going out. Your mother and, and the boyfriend yeah. at the time, because what I try I've only dated one woman who's got a kid and uh, terrific young woman, eighteen now. But we, a few years ago we started dating and so forth. She, we were at some restaurant and if she wanted to order something. She wasn't sure. I said, order that. And if you don't like it, what do you want? I'll order it. And we just. Which well, I've done want. that. Too. That's like I've taking care of what somebody it, at, wants. At and...
2: least you then still get the different options. That's the thing. It's variety. Variety mm-hmm. is the spice but, of life. But there was a reason for doing it. What do you want? And, yeah, and, no, you know, I get that. I, I've I've done that as well, uh, and that makes sense. The the what doesn't make sense is doing what Joe and Jill Biden did, ordering the same identical dish. As your wife. Amy, I mean, it's such a wasted opportunity. It's just, it kills me. If there were six people there, there might have been six of those orders. Ah! I, 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 can't. I, I can't. It's what I, they're known I would, for. I would walk right out of there. Boy, I would walk right out of there. 800 848 Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete.
7: Hey, Frank. Listen, my wife and I, we would have sometimes surf and turf, and she can't eat lobster because he's allergic to it. So what we do is I get the two lobsters. She gets the two uh, steaks, and then I I muzzle a piece of steak out of it just to see how it is, and that's what we do. But my daughter, she's the one. She orders whatever I order because about three years ago I was 350 pounds. Now I'm 230, and she always says, I got to get what the fat man gets, and everybody laughs. laughs. They don't, you know, and I'm still – And thinking that way of being three hundred and fifty pounds, because when I go, I can't sit in the booth. I gotta have a seat at a table to be comfortable. But I've met you. You
2: you don't look overweight to me. I've met you. Well, well, now, now you met me at,
7: uh, you know, two thirty. I was two fifty like that. But I was three fifty over about three or four years ago, and I lost the weight because of the diabetes. You know, now I can basically eat anything I want. Well, that's great. I'm um, glad you're doing well. And how? my wife is doing much better. She's got Wonderful. A good news. She's got a slow cancer, so I just want to let you know. Thanks for the prayers. That's great. Is there a quick Thank
3: answer you. to how you lost the weight? Did
7: well, you... I did. I got a doctor. and What she did was she made me write down everything, and I had to drink a lot of water, and I got to exercise. So I have 15-step walk-up, walk up, and I go up and down You know, the stairs for exercise, and I go over to Staten Island Mall and walk up for you know, bad weather, I know I walk like the boardwalk in Staten Island. So that's it. A lot of exercise, a lot of weight, and a lot of discipline. I could basically eat everything I want. And also, I'm on metformin for my diabetes. And believe me, that's a weight that helps you lose weight, too.
2: Thank you, Pete. 800-848-9222. Original Rick in New Jersey. Hello.
4: Yeah, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Um, no, Frank, I... I'd love to have a, a psychologist call in and, and chime in on why you can't order the same thing, even if that's what you want. It, it, you sort of have like a, it's a confrontation, not a confrontation, but a competition or like I'm going to order a better thing. I don't get it. I, unless you're definitely going to get a bite of it and you want to taste everything.
2: Well, look, if uh, it's my wife, I'm definitely going to be able to get a bite of it.
4: Right. Well, I, I, I knew a food critic he would bring all his friends to dinner and they'd all have to order something different. So he could try all these things and then critique them. But other than that, just in your head,
5: just do what you want to do. Don't base your life on anyone else. Frank, you know, don't be uh, afraid to like, Conform a little bit. Rick, yeah. That's all. You, you, Rick,
3: you brought up a great idea, though. Bringing a shrink in to talk to Frank. Oh, yeah. I think it's yeah. deeper issues than just this. I what think, do you think? I think you're probably
17: both
4: oh, right. right. Oh, it's just one, one, one. Yeah, it's just one little instance that, in, a, in a
17: whole Yeah, thank thing.
2: you, Rick. You know, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post on this subject as well. Emily Heil wrote it. Uh, the Bidens ordered the same dish at a restaurant. Who? Does that. That's the headline. And it goes on to say it wasn't what they ate exactly that got people all worked up. Their choices were on brand. And uh, it was the mere fact that they both ordered the same entree that set group chats and social media sideline commentators ablaze across the land. For many, and I am in the many, it's verboten to choose the same entree as one's dining partner. Hannah Madden, a 24-year-old Washington resident who does fundraising for a political nonprofit, is firmly in this camp. Getting the same thing as the person you're eating dinner with is silly. The whole point of going out to eat is getting to try as many things as possible. Amen, sister. She is absolutely right. 800-848-9222. Steve in Mount Sinai, where do you you stand on Biden dinner gate?
1: There's a reason why he did that. If you've ever been around anybody with dementia, one of the earliest signs is the inability to order from a menu. So she ordered and ordered the same thing for him so she didn't have to sit there for a half hour while he looked at the menu and was unable to order.
2: Well, I mean – I'm a little skeptical of that, one, because I feel like anything Biden does, people claim is a sign of dementia, two, uh, because he could have just asked the waiter, what are the specials? And then said, I'll have that, whatever the last thing was. And um, you know what? I'd be interested to see if there's a pattern of this. If on the next time they go out, he doesn't order something from the menu and he just orders whatever she has, then maybe I'll lend that some credence. But I I think – you know, I think people are looking to read a political meaning into this or a uh, mental health meaning into this. When I don't know that there is one,
3: I, I, I'm stupefied at that idea. But I did think of this though. What about when Harry met Sally? I love what she's having.
2: I mean, you just ruined <laughs> all that, I guess, didn't you, Frank? <laughs> Donna, what's your take on this? Hi, Frank. It's Donna. Yeah, um Anyway, my my husband and
14: I we order the same thing. Maybe because we're married forty years. Well, we were younger, we didn't have a problem. We would order different things. But as we got older, we just enjoy the same foods, and we don't mind getting the same thing. That's my take on it.
2: So you, you don't go to a restaurant, you and your husband, and think, well, you know, maybe I, I'd like to try this. You'd like to try this. Why don't we get one of each, and this way we'll share it and each try what one another is having. Well, maybe because we go to sometimes the same restaurants, mm. and we like, you know, we go to
7: Canlands. We get their turkey dinner. We oh, both enjoy yeah. it.
2: Canlan's is a great place. When next time you go in there, tell Eddie I said hello, uh, Donna. I'll see you hopefully uh, well, this weekend if uh, if I'm up early you. enough. Thank you. Eight hundred. That's my uh, newspaper delivery person. I still get the paper delivered. Congressman Jeff Van Drew coming up in a, in a minute, but uh, first let me say hello to Gillen. Hello, Gillen. Hey, how are you? I make a living.
9: You make a living. That's awesome. Um, can we discuss how much, or that's
2: too personal? Uh, wait, wait, wait,
3: Frank on Facebook, million your million dollar contract.
2: Is that what they said? Yeah, right? I just saw that. That's news to me. But is uh, my contract double? Right. Yeah, my, it, I get a double from last right, time. That's, yeah, that's uh, Gil, awesome. what's on your mind, pal? Um, a pal of mine. Um, I, I, I think it's just too much of a big deal. I think uh, let the Bidens order what they want. Well, obviously, nobody is uh, is demanding that they order something different. It's just strange, in my view. Thank you, Gillen. Um, you know, maybe we'll, we'll go through restaurants with Congressman Jeff Van Drew as well, because there are some great restaurants in Atlantic City. And one of the questions I always ask when we do the AC report is, what's your favorite? And it always turns out to be a controversial question that I ask people. We'll see what his answer is. Eight hundred four eight ninety two twenty two. 22 Matt Blaze, where do you come down uh, on this? Do you and your domestic partner order the same thing? Um, she doesn't like to, I don't care. I say, But you say you don't.
0: So I, if, if I order first, she won't, which I don't, I mean, the woman always orders first, but I will order the same thing. But when we discuss like, Oh, what are you going to get? Oh, what are you going to get? If I say something that she wanted, she'd be like, Oh, I was going to get that.
2: And I'm like, well, you could still get it. And then sometimes no. she doesn't, sometimes no, she doesn't. I am with her completely. Now, Kenneth, you are uh, unattached romantically, right? Yes, sir. Well, are you allowed to ask that question? I, I Probably not. So um, what? Wh- I, I'm imagining there have been times where you've been in relationships. What, what's your
18: ordering policy? Listen, when I go out, Frank, I'm getting whatever I'm in the mood for. If there's something on the menu that strikes my eye and she's getting the same thing,
2: I don't care. Well, see, I'm na- getting it. Now we know exactly why you're single, Kenneth. That's it. Oh, All right. really? This Congressman angel. Congressman Jeff Van Drew uh, joins us in the AC Report. Straight ahead,
0: the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
15: He's your numero uno.
0: It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
18: This is the AC Report.
2: night and it blew up his house too down on the boardwalk they're ready for a fight gonna see what them racket boys can do now there's trouble busting in from out of state and the da can't get no relief Gonna be a rumble on the promenade. And the gambling commission is hanging on by the skin of his teeth. Everything dies, baby, that's a fact.
7: But maybe everything that dies someday he comes back. Put your makeup on,
6: fish your hair up pretty, and meet me tonight in Atlantic City.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. It is time for our weekly look at the 48 most interesting blocks in all the world. That's right, the 48 blocks that constitute Atlantic City. And an interesting thing has happened over the course of the last couple of months. Anyone that I speak to that lives in Atlantic City, anyone that I speak to that visits Atlantic City, they've got one thing on their mind. Why are there so many whales washing up on the beaches in Atlantic City and near Atlantic City? At least 10 dead whales have washed ashore on beaches in New York or New Jersey since December 5th. 23 dead whales have washed up on the East Coast since December. A lot of people are concerned about this. I don't think you can ever really shake the sight of a dead or dying whale lying on the beach. Uh, on the one hand, you see the boardwalk, you see the casinos, and then uh, you see a whale dead on the beach. And it's very a very difficult image to shake. And this is one area that has uh, some Republicans and some conservationists on the same side because some people have raised some concerns about what offshore wind might mean for what these whales are going through one of the people that has been all over this issue has been one of my favorite congressmen one of my favorite people quite frankly he was one of my favorites as a democrat and now he's one of my favorites as a republican congressman jeff van drew he's a republican representing new jersey's second district a district that includes a big chunk of south jersey including atlantic city congressman it's great to talk with you again thanks for joining me
10: uh it's good to be with you frank i appreciate it and uh you know, let's get the information out. Uh,
2: so, uh, why do you think this situation with the whales is happening? What is your research telling you? What have you heard?
10: Well, I think personally um, that some of the testing that Orsted and these windmill companies are doing on the ocean floor are creating harm. It isn't only creating harm to the whales. But the whales are these great, magnificent beasts that we see that come forward. And I almost said, you know, because I've been fighting this fight for a while, that it's almost biblical in a way, where you have these just beautiful, great animals that have sacrificed themselves because there's a company that wants to, in my opinion, turn the ocean into uh, an industrial complex, basically. I mean, we're going to have towers that are going to be over. 1,000 feet tall, it's going to be tall three times the height of uh, Lady Liberty. We are going to have a lot of vessels going back and forth that are carrying diesel fuel, which I thought we were so worried about all this, but suddenly we're not for them. Most of the people that are going to be doing the labor are not going to be from America. Over 50% of the energy now in this area is going to be controlled by a foreign country and not controlled by America. How can any of this be good? We're damaging the cold pool. The cold pool is something that has some of the most significant and important natural resources, especially in fish Anywhere in the world, and we're damaging that, and we're causing harm. So whether it is real estate, because you know people in real estate depend on a desirable shore, whether it is the fishing industry, whether it is the environment, so many different things, these companies just don't care. They're just blasting their way through, mm. and they just want to make a lot of money, and that's what this is about. This is about money, money money.
2: We're talking with Congressman Jeff Van Drew. He represents the district where a lot of these whales have washed up along the beach. Uh, Congressman, as far as you're concerned, what should be done about this? What's the solution, at least temporarily? We,
10: we have um, m- multiple solutions. Number one, on March, let me make sure I get the date right here, on March 16th at 2 p.m., March 16th at 2 p.m., There's going to be a congressional hearing in South Jersey that I will be running, and we're going to get some experts and people that tell the truth, people that are experts in fishing, people that are experts in the environment, people that are experts in economics, that are experts in this industry and know what it can do and what it cannot do and the harm that it can cause as well. So that's number one. Let's clear the air. Let's get the information out there. Let people know the real deal. Let them know that their utility rates and their taxes are going to go up. So that's number one. Number two, we're going to have later on in early spring, we're going to have a hearing in Washington, D.C., concerning this exact same subject with more people who are knowledgeable about this whole thing. Also, tor- towards the goal, what I'm aiming here is a moratorium uh, on these windmills until we know a lot more and maybe just a moratorium forever. And I have legislation mm-hmm. that's in the process to do that as well. We're also doing a resolution um, that just gives the sense of Congress um, you know what this whole entire process is doing to the East Coast of the United States, and how concerned we are with it I, I have to be honest with you frank i 've seen a lot of bad things you know i 've been in politics as you know I was a mayor i was a used to be called a freeholder, but a county commissioner, um, state assemblyman, state senator for sixteen years i've seen a lot of stuff and i 've been in Congress my third term now. This is the biggest, baddest thing wow. I've ever seen.
2: Well, I really uh, and. I can only imagine the bad things you saw as a dentist as well, uh, which uh, <laughs> takes the cake. Talking with Congressman Jeff Andrew, uh, everything that you just said makes total sense to me. And a lot of uh, conservation groups seem to be on the same side as this. Now, there are others who are saying there's no evidence to support that the prep for offshore wind has anything to do with these whales, whale deaths. The New York Times had an article this week saying that a lot of the fatalities of humpbacks suggest that sh- uh, ship Strikes are the cause of many of these deaths yeah. some people say that it's the population of humpbacks uh, that has rebounded and because of the uptick in population you're seeing more things like uh like like uh, ship strikes other people are saying it's climate change other people are saying it's online pandemic buying habits uh one person who's actually a fan of yours a, a republican wrote to me and said that the wind developers have obtained leases for space offshore but no developers have been granted a license to provide powers so none of the Factories to assemble the uh, turbines has even been cited yet. So is it a little bit too much of a reach to say that it's the sonar work that is that is causing this? And some people are saying that the, these are folks that don't like wind energy anyway that are raising these objections. What do you say to all that, Congressman?
10: Well, I, I, let me tell you. Early on, in the very, very beginning, before all this started, and I've been at this for at least three years, I was. I thought wind energy, it sounds great, it's clean, it's nice, it could be pretty. Um, it's nothing like that. And by the way, anybody that does know the Atlantic City area, if you see the windmills at the MUA, they are toys compared to the number, the wow. size, the height, and the girth of what these windmills are going to be number two those that tell you that it's because of the in- increased transportation occurring on our oceans because of so many people you know involved with commerce and ordering so many things online and all this stuff is shipped over to America not true the number of ships were actually down the number wasn't up so it, it isn't from that this is from fully actually testing on the floor of the ocean. Uh, We all know, we've all learned in school how sensitive the hearing of some of these animals are. These are mammals, they have very sensitive hearing and uh, probably put them off course in many ways, and that's probably what some ship strikes might have been from. And you can't say it's climate change because climate change wouldn't all of a sudden happen, you know, immediately at the same time when they start doing this testing on the ocean floor. I mean, that's not how climate change works. Um, whether you believe in it or you don't believe in it, it's not how it works. So that's pretty silly. You know, I've got a letter right in front of me from Sean Hayes, who's Noah's. Um, chief of protected species. He's the chief of protected species. And in this letter he goes through paragraph by paragraph. Now think about this. Noah's had this for months. They knew about this already. Orsted, the company, knew about it for a long period of time already. And they've got this stuff in front of them that says all the problems, all the damage that can be caused and would be caused if you do these windmills. And this is from a scientist who is the chief of protected species um, to Boehm. It was never brought out, and it was only because the Truth and Information Act that some reporters actually got a hold of it, and it's starting to get around now.
2: And and it would strike me – They're lying to us it would strike me as a pretty logical thing. Let's try a moratorium and see if that solves the problem. And if it doesn't, then we know the problem is something else. Why not eliminate well, this let, as a possibility?
10: Let, yeah. And let's try agreed and let's try a moratorium and let's do some better research mm. when you've got a noted uh, you know scientist here that says it, there are a lot of big problems who actually works for NOAA. This is not just some fly by night guy that you know one of our neighbors who reads a lot of science books or whatever I mean this is a guy who studied this and is really worried about it and pretty much was just silenced and this information we had to get the you know it's, you know something 's always wrong when you 've got to go and use legal recourse to get information that should be available to the public about their ocean. This belongs to all of us. It doesn't sure. belong to BOEM. It doesn't belong to Orsted. It doesn't belong to all these billionaires that are making many more billions of dollars on this. This belongs to the world, and it belongs to America on the East Coast. And Absolutely. like I said before, it's big and it's bad, and we've got to try to see what we can do.
2: And your district includes not only Atlantic City, which is one of the best free beaches in all the world, I think, but uh, Cape May, New Jersey, which is uh, my wife and I—that's uh, our favorite vacation spot. So uh, it's a, a shame to uh, to see any any of the marine life or uh, anything that's going on in those oceans, as scoring. well as Ocean County. I have half of Ocean County. So... Uh, I have not. I have not spent as much time in Ocean, but uh, I'm yeah. told it's uh, it's just as picturesque. Talk with Congressman Jeff Van Hey, Congressman, whenever I do these Atlantic City. Segments. There's always a bunch of people that criticize me on social media, saying, you know, well, why are you promoting Atlantic City? Oh, Atlantic City is uh, is is a town that's in the dumps. It's dangerous. It's this. It's that. As far as you're concerned, for people listening around the country who may not have been to Atlantic City for a while, is Atlantic City a safe place to visit?
10: It, it's certainly if you're in and around the casinos on the boardwalk, you're fine. Can we do better? Yes. Absolutely. We need it to be more well-lit. We need it brighter. We need more police officers. Um, We need some work to be done in Atlantic City, but it's still an amazing, amazing place, and you can have a wonderful time uh, having a great dinner, uh, enjoying the beach, enjoying the ocean, enjoying um, all the activities they have to offer. But you can always do better, and it has some challenges, and we have to meet those challenges.
2: Are you at all concerned about the impact of the New York City area casinos, the three forthcoming uh, New York City area casinos, and what that might mean for Atlantic City and South Jersey's economy?
10: Well, hopefully with the other things, none of them have a boardwalk. Mm-hmm. And none of them have a beach. So hopefully with some of the other things that we have to offer in Atlantic City and should offer in Atlantic City, um, we're still going to be okay. Am I concerned? Absolutely. It, it, it creates a challenge. I mean, but, you know, you've got you to gotta work your way through these things. I mean, we had a challenge. You know, we, we, the, the only casinos were in Atlantic City for a while other than Las Vegas. And, of course, that changed, and, and we survived that. Um, and I, I believe that we'll survive this as well.
2: Well, one of the things that uh, I didn't like, and my favorite activity in Atlantic City is to just stroll the boardwalk and uh, check it, t- check out the sites and uh, check things out, look at the beach, look at the ocean, look at the casinos. But one of the things, last few visits that I had there that I wasn't crazy about is on the boardwalk, you get almost punched in the face with this sm- odor of marijuana. And look, I get New York and New Jersey are moving in that direction. But I see that Atlantic City is going to have a cannabis lounge, just as somebody that lives in South Jersey, Congressman. What's your view of this cannabis lounge coming to Atlantic City?
10: Look, it is legal. Um, I don't deny people things that are legal. I was always supportive of medical marijuana. Is this something we really need to have in Atlantic City right now? Rather than have the cannabis lounge, I'd rather have a lot more lighting. Uh, I'd rather have, as I said before, more police and more people just keeping the area immaculate, more ambassadors people who welcome you and show you around. I mean, more of what was, at least used to be, the Disney approach and the Disney attitude towards taking care of people uh, rather than than something like this. You know, that's up to the, you know, the fathers and mothers of Atlantic City who, um, you know, decide in government what they want to do and how they're going to go about it and what they're going to zone. But uh, it shouldn't be overpowering. In fact, um, it shouldn't be something that should be, I don't believe, smoked, you know, right on the boardwalk. Um, so people are overwhelmed by it. There's other ways of ingesting or taking in marijuana, cannabis, and I don't know that that's a good way. You know, smoking's not good for you. It's not good for right. you, whatever you're smoking.
2: Um, uh, you've been very generous with your time, but I do have to ask you, give me your take on this whole debt ceiling drama. Are we going to see a deal? What's that deal going to look like? Uh, how, how do you see this playing out?
10: Oh, You're going to have to see a deal. It, there's no question it has to be worked out. One, It just isn't going to be just done the same old way everything was done. On the other hand, we need a responsible debt ceiling. We need a debt ceiling that puts us in the right direction. Are we going to be able to completely take away the debt ceiling and it's going to go to zero? No. And you know that and I know that. Anybody that says otherwise is not realistic. But we've got to do better. We have to stop spending as much as we've continually been spending, especially on so many foolish things. I mean, I look at things like we're spending money all over the world. We're supporting the World Health Organization that lies to us. We are um, giving money to other countries. We're we're giving money to and we're spending money in uh, Pakistan. Pakistan on gender equity studies. I'm not sure what we oh, need wow. that for. We're <laughs> building up and making stronger borders in Egypt and Jordan, but we don't even keep our own borders right. It's time to take care of America, to spend less in every godforsaken country in the world, and we do need to help them, and I want to be part of that. But you know what? Right now we've got to take care of America and be strong, and Damn. we've got to put us on the right fiscal track, responsible debt that ceiling.
2: Let's not forget the $100 billion that we sent over to Ukraine. All right, I'm going to end with uh, three very quick but very controversial questions. You are the best-dressed congressman in New York and New Jersey, probably in the whole country. You pull off a pocket square better than anybody that I've ever seen. When I try to pull off a pocket square, it comes across looking unorganized, disheveled, or like I'm trying to be pretentious. Give the gentleman listening a pro-tip, Congressman, on how to pull off a pocket square like jeff andrew
10: oh it's easy to do you it depends what you like so some people have the real fluffy ones that are you know all over the place i just do the straight and narrow right across the pocket and sort of conservative but i like it but you could pull it
2: off just fine no problems All right. Uh, This is always the most controversial question I ask in these segments. Gun to your head. You have to pick. It doesn't matter what type of cuisine, your absolute favorite restaurant in Atlantic City. What is it? Uh, That I'm not
10: doing. (laughs) (laughs) I love those guys and I am just not going to do it. Um, I'm not. I'm sorry. They all are. How's that?
2: All right. Can you give me top three? How about a top three?
10: Nah, I'm, I'm All right, fair
2: enough, fair enough. You've been so generous with answering all these other questions. Lastly, uh, going back to your dentistry experience, there's been a big debate on this program. Should people uh, brush their teeth before breakfast or after breakfast?
10: So it's probably better that you do it after breakfast if you can. Um, and the, the rule to remember is not a popular term right now, but FBI, floss, brush, and irrigate. So irrigation is like a water pick type devices, and there's a lot of good ones out there right now. If you do that, floss, brush, and irrigate once a day, and then the second time, just brush, you'll be in great shape.
2: Congressman, I'll look forward to running into you the next time Uh, that we're both in Atlantic City. Thanks for the great work that you're doing. I'll look forward to chatting again soon.
10: Frank, thank you so much for having on. Take care.
2: Thank you. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with Congressman Jeff Bandrew, give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Marano.
2: Take Me Alive. Uh, Since boating season is upon us, uh, this is part of the Yacht Rock theme that uh, Andy Gladding, who's a distinguished radio engineer, is uh, celebrating in terms of his birthday bumper music listening this week. Uh, Happy birthday, Andy Gladding. All right, uh, this is The Other Side of Midnight, joined in studio by O.B. Murray. If you want to comment on anything we're talking about, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Let let me say say, uh, one thing. By the way, if you ever want to know what kind of music we're playing on this show... We post it in the Facebook group every day. You can just go on Facebook and search uh, Morano Radio Fans and Haters, or you can go to Facebook.com slash groups slash Radio Morano. And it's meant to be a forum for discussing this show as well. By the way, um, I don't know how many times I have to say this, but there's so many people that are posting or trying to post in this Facebook group on stuff that has nothing to do with the show before you post in there, just ask yourself, did Frank talk about this? Did one of his guests talk about it? Is it related in any way to what Frank is talking about? If not, maybe think twice about trying to post it. Maybe if they... Just turn your mic on there. Okay? I got to turn a mic on? I haven't figured that out. I
3: know. I'm a little, yeah. I'm a little slow, Frank. Like I said the other night, I, I feel like I'm 90 sometimes, but, um, but wiser. Maybe if they email me or tweet to me or something like that, I'll talk about it. Then they can post it. There you but go. Why don't we do That's it that a, way. There, we'll, you go. We'll go there
2: you go. There uh, you go. People can find you on Twitter how? Uh, O'Brien Murray. O'Brien Murray. With an E. Yeah. I mean, one guy even tried to post the other day. With basically looking for a job, like an administrative job for someone that he knows. Uh, And I'm just thinking, why are you posting this here? Go and post, buy a classified ad. And then they complain, why why isn't my post being posted? I just, I don't understand it.
0: Or they do this. Frank breeds so... Here's a story
2: about lungs. You and, know what? I like, at least what? appreciate the effort there. At least <laughs> they're trying to link it, right? I, I don't understand the people who are just randomly posting news articles. What or, if, what if or, they
3: want you to post, talk about something? Yeah, if well, okay. they say? Well, then they should. So maybe they should. Be, you talk about being proactive and being positive on all these posts mm-hmm. and what people say. What, if, see,
2: Frank? What about talking about this? Yeah, but that would qualify. Well, uh, yeah, I, I do allow those uh, and that I, I do get those. By the way, I don't understand. I speak so often on this program about people trying to be positive about social media and use social media well. And yet the amount of toxicity that is present on every aspect of of social media with respect to me is just staggering. I'm just thinking, how do these people listen to me every day? And then just completely ignore everything that I say with respect to negativity and insults. I posted a photo of Ernie and Astas and me on the other uh, there the other day. Somebody said, "Hey Frank, time to go to the gym." Now they're probably right, but still, I mean, you don't think I, I recognize the fact that I'm thirty five pounds overweight, maybe forty pounds? You know, you don't have to point it out. I just, it just really makes me crazy. And I'll tell you what else grinds my gears. I'll tell you what else really irks me is. You know what really grinds my gears? Is the fact that when people email me, they don't know how to use paragraphs. Use the paragraph means, hit enter. Guilt, space, space, space. Enter, space, space. space. They send me these long screeds. It looks like it's written by a mental patient. Paragraphs, paragraphs, paragraphs. I'm sitting
3: right here, Frank. You don't have to
2: tell it on air. Okay? No, that's not You what? Know, well, we have other email <laughs> issues with you. We'll get into it. Uh, if you want to email me, by the way, you can do so. Frank.Morano uh, at WABCRadio.com. Until then, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Moreno. Uh, well, I don't really enjoy traveling. Uh, I mean, it's not that I don't enjoy it. Uh, I like to see different things, experience new things, learn new things. But I, I find very few places are worth the effort to get there. And, you know, it's for years... I didn't travel, I think, for about maybe 15 years. I didn't go on an airplane, not for any reason other than to paraphrase Larry David in that Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. Where was he going to go? Right. I guess I could have traveled more, but uh, where was he going to go? Well, um, there's a whole series of articles about first-class air travel. Now, uh, I flew first class once when I was uh, I was a boy. I think I was about eight or nine years old. My mother and I went to London, and uh, they had overbooked a flight, and we had to wait around. And whatever circumstances uh, happened, we ended up uh, taking a later flight, but we got to fly first class. Now, I, this was my only experience flying first class, but I have to tell you, this was no joke. This was something. I mean this was even as an 8 or 9 year old I could recognize that this was the lap of luxury. New York Times has an article in their frugal travel frugal traveler column going once going twice how to bid on a first class seat. Flyers on some airlines can upgrade at a discounted rate to avoid what could be a cramped flight with some cruise ships And even Amtrak getting in on the act, is bidding up worth it? I thought that was an interesting question. Thrill List has an article about Lufthansa and what they're doing in terms of their new first-class accommodations. Headline in Thrill List, Lufthansa's brand-new first-class suites are basically hotel rooms. Now, I am going out to Atlanta in April. Uh, And uh, I already bought my tickets, and I guess there's a way for me to upgrade to first class. I'm flying by myself. I probably won't. But it's very likely that I'm going to have to end up going to uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana for some political thing. I'll I'll tell you more details as we get closer to it. But um, I've never been to Louisiana, and I'd certainly like to go. But I'm thinking, you know. I'm flying by myself. How expensive could it be to upgrade my airline ticket to first pl- first class? So what I did last night is I started pricing out airline tickets, coach versus first class. And the difference from flying from New York to Baton Rouge, Louisiana, was only like $250, $300. And I'm starting to wonder if it's if it's worth it. I'm curious – In your view, when you travel, do you find first class is worth it? 800-848-9222. Of course, uh, the first thing, as is so often the case with me, that came to mind is the television program Seinfeld. I
12: have one seat in first class and one in coach. The price is the same because your flight
15: was canceled.
2: Oh. Well, uh, I'll take the first class.
8: Jerry? what?
15: Why should you get the first class,
0: Elaine? Have you ever flown first class? No. All right then. See, you don't know what you're missing.
17: I've flown first class, Elaine. I can't go back to coach. I can't. I won't. Live here, coach. Yeah, that's the point.
15: All right, fine. I don't care. The plane crashes. Everybody in first class is going to die anyway.
8: Uh, yeah, I'm
10: sure you'll live.
2: <laughs> By the way, uh, for people that uh, are wondering where the safest place to sit on an airplane is, the uh, there was an article that came out in uh, just a few weeks ago that apparently a Time investigation uh, that looked at Time magazine looked at 35 years of aircraft accident data, and they found that the middle rear seats of an aircraft had the lowest fatality rate, 28% compared with 44% for the middle aisle seats. So you want to sit in the middle rear of an aircraft if you want to avoid dying. Obviously, uh, it didn't work out so well for Elaine. She ended up in coach, but see, she still tried to sneak her way into first class.
15: No, please don't send me back there. Please, I'll do anything. It's so nice up here. You know, it's so comfortable up here. I don't want to go back there. Please don't send me back there.
18: Oh, you got cookies.
15: (laughs) You're going to have to go back to your seat. Okay, fine. I'll go
12: back. You know, our goal should be a society without classes.
2: Uh, joining me in studio is E. O'Brien Murray, noted political consultant, communication strategist, and observer of human culture. Ob, I imagine you do a fair amount of traveling. I, I used to do a lot more. It depends where I was working, what
3: was going on, and so forth. A lot more by car now. Again, going to Vermont and so where, forth. were
2: you just in Puerto Rico recently?
3: I was in Puerto Rico for uh, Somos. Right. For, for, the, for the convention. Right. No, every, so you, every November. Sure. So you flew, I imagine. Oh,
2: sure. Yes. You right. I did. I didn't swim. I did not swim. I can't do that one. Where do you come down on the first class versus coach debate? Oh, if it's, I would take it
3: if it was worth it as far as the difference in price and
2: also what time of day I'm flying, how long the flight is, and what I have to do at the other end. So that was such an interesting thing about the length of the flight because I think the fact that my mom and I had this whatever it is to England, maybe a eight- or nine-hour flight. It really was – I mean, we got bumped up. We didn't pay. But it really was worth it because it, you're in luxury for eight or nine hours. And you probably did it at night. It was a red-eye. Right. I think it was. And so therefore –
3: I can sleep anywhere. So for me, I don't have to worry about sleeping either. In that
2: so when you say what the difference in price is, right? Is $200 for, say, a, a four-and-a-half, five-hour flight, is that – is that enough to merit first class? Probably. You also, don't,
3: also, don't forget, with that, you usually get baggage check and you get other things come with it. So you're saving the money on the other front end, too. Right. Well, I'm probably just going to be there for clubs. a couple of
2: days. I probably won't check a bag anyway. Okay. But, but if,
3: you, if you're playing golf, I mean, that's the thing, too. Uh-huh. I might mean, travel golf clubs I, and skis. So do you look at first class accommodations when you when you fly? Sure. You look at it, of course. And then also you look at upgrades. You use points, too, based on what mm-hmm. the points cost. Mm-hmm. No uh, it also depends if you're flying with somebody, you got to get two of them. Right. That's, well, different, that's, that's, that's the difference that's, too. That's why
2: I thought maybe this trip to Baton Rouge in Louisiana for July where I'm going solo, maybe that's an opportunity because uh, if I pay the extra 200 bucks, it's just me. It's not like I'm paying an extra 400 bucks. I, I don't disagree with it whatsoever, but also if you start getting bumped around, you got karma. I mean there's a whole slew right. of
3: things. So you travel by yourself and you do so many things differently.
2: Right. Much well, easier. But, but – is the different things that you do meaning you're more likely to use first-class travel or less likely?
3: Yeah, well, you're more likely to do it because also booking two seats and, and right. the schedules and so forth are that much different. Yeah, so I, yeah, Don't forget, JetBlue doesn't have it. So if you fly in JetBlue, you don't have that choice either. Mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. So I think I'm going to do this. I think I may book, if I end up going to uh, Louisiana, I think I may go the first-class route. I've never purchased a first-class ticket for, for myself. I think I may do that. And a lot of first-class seats, they're shrinking the numbers of them, too. I know. So therefore, it's tougher to even get. I know. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna look at that. I'm curious. In your experience, does uh, first is first class travel worth it? If it's 200 bucks, if it's 300 bucks, at what point does it become not worth it? Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. By the way, speaking of um, speaking of airline travel, very disturbing article. Aviation officials are investigating two more alarming, ne- uh, basically flight near disasters. Just two weeks. After the FAA announced a safety call to action on Monday, a business jet took off without clearance at Boston Logan International Airport, forcing an incoming jet blue flight to go around. In a go-around, uh, pilots add power, climb back up, and set up for another landing attempt. Last week, at Hollywood Burbank Airport near L.A., a Mesa Airlines regional jet went around. After a SkyWest flight was cleared for takeoff, the Mesa aircraft was only about a mile from the runway. The number of serious runway incidents has been trending down over the past two decades, but it's risen significantly more in recent years. I wonder what the story is there. What do you, any theories? Is it a question of experience
3: of aircraft controllers? I is, it, is it more of flights since COVID, where they went down and they came back up? I uh, also don't forget. I think a lot of airports seem to have been doing construction during COVID as it picked up because they had fewer flights, and now they're catching. They're, they're behind on it. JFK is closing down a the terminal. They did it in January.
2: I mean, that's a major construction aspect. I interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I do. I do wonder about that. 800-848-9222.
3: Vito is on Staten
2: Island. Hello, Vito.
8: Hey, Frank. How are you? Um, I used to work for Nell. I retired from uh, United Airlines, and uh, if. Flying transatlantic is one thing. First class, domestically, if I could get a first class seat, absolutely I would. I would. I would jump on it. It's all about service, and I'm gonna tell you right now, the service you you get a you get a wider seat, and 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 the and the, uh, the flight crew is more attentive to the first class passenger. There's fewer passengers up front than there are in the back. You get you get a hot meal served in a dish. Uh, you get. All the coffee you want, all the alcohol you want, if you could, you know, I mean, you know, you could drink. But, but for free? Again, for free? It's, it's a comfort. Uh, I'm not going to say for free, but I'll tell oh. you what. I used to fly from Newark to, uh, to Rome. And what it costs for you to go over the Verrazano Bridge round trip is what I would pay.
2: Wow! Um, that, first but, of yeah, all, that, he yeah. worked for the airline, though. Yeah, There's, no, I understand. Um, yeah. but so for for a regular passenger, for uh, a regular passenger, for two hundred bucks, if you could, if if you
8: could swing it, I would absolutely do it.
2: Now, uh, for obviously Transatlantic, as we as we said, is is one thing. But what if it's just a four and a half hour flight to Louisiana? Do you think it's worth it for two hundred bucks?
8: I still think it's worth. You it. You do again. You're sitting in a. You're still sitting in a comfortable seat plank. You're sitting most likely in a leather chair mm-hmm. that reclines a lot more than, than the coach class seat uh, does.
3: You have more leg room. It, it's more comfortable. What time are you flying? It's more comfortable. I don't know. I, I haven't booked a flight. If, yet. if you fly overnight, are you sleeping? I mean, you're, you're awake now. I'm just saying, right now with your habits is one thing. Right. Are you going to work on the flight I mean, wheel, even, watch even, even, if you, even if you could fall asleep,
8: even uh, you know, when you're flying in the daytime, you're, you're, it's more comfortable. Yeah, like I said, there's no baby screaming behind you, in front of you, next to you. You're sitting in a nice, comfortable chair.
2: Well, I, I, Vito, I think you may have convinced me here. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two. If I'm going to twenty two, I'm sorry. If, if I'm going to sleep,
3: I'm sleeping on a window seat somewhere in the back. And I sit down, I'm out before they take off, and I wake up when they
2: land. Well, that's the thing. I usually sleep on the plane. I wake up to order a drink. <laughs> but, um, I uh, I go right back to sleep. So maybe it's not worth it. But if it's during the day, and you'll be up, you know, if you're reading, well, watching remember, a movie. Right, so if I'm probably going to leave Friday, uh, on a Friday, right, uh, you know, not right after the show, but a couple hours after the show. So I probably won't have slept. So I'll be tired for the flight. But Vito's saying even if you're sleeping, it's worth it to get the it's first a, class. It's a question how you sleep, though. I mean, some yeah. people can't fall. Do you, you sleep on flight? I do. Even coach. So maybe it's not worth it for me. Eh, then. be iffy then. Yeah. It's a question of what you need to do to sleep. That's true. 800-848-9222. By the way, I, um, you know, speaking of, we were talking about William Shatner as part of the aging discussion. He's in, uh, I believe, Atlanta next week and uh, D- Detroit and Indianapolis. I reached out to the, uh, the the Shatner people. They're doing the same thing. They're doing these screenings of Star Trek: II, the Wrath of Khan, along with q and A. Um, a Q&A, uh, Atlanta, Milwaukee, and Detroit on three consecutive days. By the way, think about that. The guy's ninety two years old this month. He's doing. He's flying from California to Atlanta the next day in Wisconsin. He's not, the next day in Michigan.
3: He's not flying first class. He's flying private.
2: Right. Uh, well, uh, maybe but whatever. But still, just that amount of travel. That's something.
3: When I was with uh, when I left Steve Wynn, when I left uh, Mirage, I went to Hilton. And when I went there, they actually sued me. They had Judge Bork. I remember that. Yeah. Judge Bork, one hundred forty million dollar lawsuit where they sued uh, Hilton, Donald Trump, Arthur Goldberg, and myself. Uh, for for they they had a Sherman Antitrust Act saying that Hilton and Donald Trump conspired to steal me from Mirage. They all got thrown out. But it was Steve Wynn playing games. It was, it's one of those things they do in the casino industry. But we flew when I was with Arthur. I had breakfast in Vegas, lunch in Dallas. We did Missouri. We did Kansas City. We did Nashville or Memphis, rather, and then uh, Atlantic City for dessert. Wow, that's pretty cool. We hired and fired people all along the way.
2: Uh, I can imagine. So anyway, uh, I offered my services to be the moderator of these uh, Star Trek To The Wrath of Khan screenings. But so far they have, and I said I'll fly out there at my own expense. And uh, so far they have not yet, uh, they, have, they have not said that they want me to come out there. So I'm assuming they made some other arrangements uh, for that. But uh, who knows? I just sent them another email yesterday to see if maybe, you know, I am available if they want me, even if it means going to Georgia wisconsin michigan or indiana uh on four consecutive days 808 for 892 22 christina is in new jersey hello christina
14: hey frank if i had the money a hundred percent first class all the time what happened to me was i was in brazil flying back to new york and i was one of the last people to get in the airplane and i just snuck in first class i sat down and nobody bothered me. I just flew back from Brazil to New York first class for free.
2: Wow, well, how do you get them to <laughs> give it to you for free? I'm reading this New York Times article about bidding on first class seats, and that seems pretty interesting but it, it, you know can you strategize in terms of how to get first class seats for free i I just knock in I just sat down Wow that is i don't th- I I think i would was that pre nine eleven Um, it was like two years ago. Oh, I I mean, I I am shocked because whenever (laughs) I'm on an airplane these days, there's just so much scrutiny and looking around. And usually
3: first class, they have the list of
2: the names. Right. They will say Mrs. Smith. Right, it's like, that's what happened to Elaine in that Seinfeld episode. They're checking out, and sorry, not unless you go back there. Christina, you yeah. know, uh, if you have any tips on how, to, uh, how I can pull that off, please email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. 800-848-9222. Frank Morano here with Obie Murray. Mike is in Woodside. Hello, Mike.
4: Hey, Frank. You know, the ultimate first class is to fly non-commercial, you know, on a right. Starter. That's what
2: Obie was saying and... about uh, Chattanoe travel. Yeah, but there is a nice way of doing it. You
4: can actually book things on, uh, on something called empty legs, where you can, you can take these empty legs for these, uh, these flights where, you know, the plane just has, has to go from point A to point B. And when, when I used to you know, work as a journalist, we, we used to get on these empty legs all the time before I went blind. And uh, you could you hop on these flights. You That's
2: not how there. you went blind, I hope.
4: No, 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 no. It's glaucoma. Uh, fortunately, it just uh, came to be and came to be. Uh, but anyway, the the bottom line is, if you can look for these anti leg flights, uh, there are websites completely dedicated to it. That's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it, of course, for your first-class bidding, let me know
19: if I can help you.
4: I'll email you a contact uh, that I have. That, that would be that great. Do. And there's a way to actually, uh, not really bid, but you just basically, you want to experience it. You write and say, you know, hey, I'd love to experience, you know, your your travel. And I've flown these 14-hour legs from here to Asia. Uh, Trust me, 14, 16, 18 hours business class is the next best option. Because remember, there is a cost factor and it is not just $200 to $500. It can be
2: $1,000. Well, you know, it's funny. That's what my cousin Andrea did because she was in a car accident a couple of years ago and she still has a very tough time with her back. She can't, according to her, she can't sit in these conventional uh, seats. So when we all went out to Hawaii for my brother Nick's wedding... She got uh, business class because she said the seats in a uh, coach were just too uncomfortable for her to sit in for the length of time that a flight to Hawaii would be, so it was a significant expenditure on her part. I think it might have been five or six hundred bucks and uh, but she went with uh, business class. does she fly often though well, upgrade I don't know I don't know I, I don't th- I don't think that often, but I don't know I'm not sure not sure
4: They do give certified if you are certified handicapped they do give you some discounts on those you know better seats uh you know seats that are are, are available within economy and coach that are actually almost seem states-wise to be like first class these are usually near the bulkhead usually in areas where you know it's it's almost at the galley uh so, so many times. i started flying when i was you know uh, probably as a passenger, rather you know. Uh, probably almost as soon as I was born, my parents would go back and forth, back and forth from the U.S. to Asia all the time. And so growing up that way, I literally grew up in the air. Mm. Uh, you also build up a lot of miles, and you build up a lot of you know techniques and ways of learning things. The, um, the you know, great they, thing about they, private, basically, there are positions on a plane. Just study the C D chart, look for the best seat number, and then ask for it on on your flight.
3: The great thing about private, Frank, though, is this TSA stuff. You keep it all your clothes on, all your shoes. Oh, they, yeah, yeah. You just give your no, bags. They, they,
2: they, you're at the FBO. I, no, I, you, I've, heard, they, they, I've they, heard about that from John Katzenmitty's. He, he always is extolling the virtues of uh, of flying private. By the way, I want to encourage you to uh, check out John Katzenmitty's new book. How far do you want to go? I got my copy. I've been reading it. Very flattered, and thanks for the call, Mike. Um, oh, but Mike. By the way, just kind of curious. So, how long have you been blind now? uh
4: declared legally blind this is probably my 6th year i can still see in a straight line you know uh, no peripherals but I, I can only see on one eye now
2: did um do you, do you find that since you lost the bulk of your sight that you're listening to radio more now than you used to be
4: well, it's easier to listen to radio than to watch T V sometimes, and that's because I used to work in TV. So it's kinda of painful watching what's happened to that media that you used to work in. It has nothing to do with my blindness. It just makes me sick to watch them sometimes.
2: Well, so I'll ask the same question. Do you find yourself listening to radio now more than when you when you had sight?
4: Um as a blind person, as a person you know with, with, who, who is visually challenged, they say, yeah, definitely interesting. Um, yeah, no, we have a I lot listen of listeners. Radio. That are,
2: yeah, we have a lot and of listeners I also that listen are Radio
4: dramas, these old radio dramas. Yeah, uh, so do I. So do I. There, I there's,
2: there's some great ones yeah. on there. Thanks, Mike. Best of luck to you. By the way, uh, speaking of John Katzman T.D.'s new book, which is available on Amazon, it's called "How Far Do You Want to Go." Very flattered uh, that uh, John was kind enough to mention me a couple of times. In the book, in the portion of the book that deals with his time uh, on radio, which uh, there's a lot of people mentioned in this book, people like Bill Clinton, Donald Trump, Barack Obama, uh, the Cuomos, uh, everybody that uh, John has dealt with over the years. So flattered to get a, a mention in there. Are
3: you in the index? You got no, the pages. No, no index. There's no so, index. So Rompeel got to read the whole. Remember book. the hair, the hairspray. Yeah. Rahm Papil? He was on the board of directors of Mirage, and he would show up at the board meetings and stuff like that. And I remember hearing the stories when his books would come out. He would talk to somebody and say, Oh, you gotta get my book, you're in it And there'd be like a mention of like one name about something that it- on the board meeting, so-and-so said right. this.
2: And that's all it was. Hey. I was like, I bought the book because of this? Yeah. Well, I would have Well, I would bought the book anyway, but I bought the book. If, if Had I known I was just getting these two mentions, I would happily bought it. They're nice mentions. Uh, and people can – I don't want to spoil it. I, I did post it on my Facebook page. So if you want to check out, see some of the mentions, you can go to Facebook.com uh, slash Morano. It's, it's a great story, though.
3: which I mean this station oh, is just – they talk about from Gristides and not finishing NYU – To where he is today with everything, and he's just having a great time doing it and giving back to to the country.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll read you this one line. Ready? This this is from how he first started his show on uh, AM 970 in New York. And he says, uh, we kicked around a few possible names and decided to call the show exactly what it was going to be, the Cats Roundtable. It would run every Sunday morning right before the TV Sunday shows come on. Producer Frank Morano, a real talk radio professional. Would be my producer helping me with some of the mechanics of hosting a radio show. See now, how many people can say they are in print, written by a self-made billionaire as quote a real talk radio professional? It's better than the mention I got. (laughs) (laughs) Not in John's book. (laughs)
3: John's John's got a great story, but the book I was in, which you actually asked me about one time, Frank. (laughs) That's right. That's right. What was I called?
2: Uh, You. <laughs> you, not, nothing kind. Come on, it's okay. Uh, now, well, it's, I, don't I, care. I don't have the book in front of me, but I remember it was nothing kind. I was Basically, the, a I was charlatan, a, a bagman. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, uh, the, I read the, I, that book. Is called War at the Shore. Obviously, I read it because it's about Atlantic City, Trump versus Win, and the battle for uh, Atlantic City. 800-848-9222. Fred is in Brooklyn. Hello, Fred. Hey,
19: good morning, Frank. Um, I never had the pleasure of upgrading to first class, but I did. Upgrade to a, a a mint seat on JetBlue. I don't know if you've ever seen the JetBlue mint, but it, it it's a seat that you sit in and you can fully lay down. I it's like oh, a really? little capsule. Wow! Oh my! Wow. If you look that up, JetBlue mint, uh, and and for the size of the seat, you get like a thirteen inch TV screen. You get a little refrigerated area to keep your drinks. It's, you get your own pillows. And it didn't cost that much more. It how much more? Um, well, we got on the plane, and I asked the stewardess, because there were some empty seats up front. I said, how much did you upgrade to that? And it was $100 per seat for me and my wife. So so it was an extra $200. But let me tell you, I, I, I reclined the whole way, um, lean back, everything fully accessible to you, and, and you get more attention from the staff on the plane. Where were you flying to? Uh, that one was California.
3: Okay, so they have that in long, long hauls, it sounds like. They don't have that all the time. We went to the Vegas
19: once. I saw it there, but they didn't have the upgrade. So I get, I guess it's something going uh, at least four or five hours, but it's fantastic seating. I don't think they come better. Even the first-class seats don't recline like those do.
2: Fred, thank you very much. Appreciate it. We're going to talk with Brian Kilmead in uh, just a bit after the $1,000 Minute, but Norman in Brooklyn has been patiently holding. Hello, Norman.
17: Hello, Frank. Um, I just came off of watching, watching, binge-watching Picard, the first uh, season. Uh, Have you been watching
2: that? When you say the first season, so now they're up to the third season. Picard. Right. Yeah, I understand Picard. But they're up to the third season now, and so you just watched the first season?
17: I watched, um, I bought the DVDs and I watched Picard the first season. Okay. And I'm into the second season. Yeah. And uh, I was just wondering what your thoughts on that were. Well,
2: I, um, I gave a review on, uh, on Monday, uh, but, um, um, you know, for, for your convenience, Norman, I'll inconvenience everybody else that was kind <laughs> enough to listen to all four. I was the program on Monday. So I loved the first season, I loved a lot of the characters that are in there. The only mm-hmm. thing that gave me a little bit of pause is i i didn't and I, i'm pleased you know no spoilers for people that haven't seen it i didn't love the ending uh of the first season i thought that was a little too easy a little too cute uh as far as the second okay. season goes i i liked the second season not as much as the first i like um, i like a lot of what they were doing with the borg and so forth that that was interesting but um, it, to me, and as, to repeat what I said on Monday, I thought it was a little too, for lack of a better term, a little too woke. Now, I'm correct. Used, I'm used to Star Trek making uh, political statements and allegories. W- what I don't like is making is not making allegories and instead just overtly making political statements. I mean, there's one episode where they make very clear that the INS are the bad guys. And so, right. I didn't like that and there was some a few other aspects of 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 that that I that made me a little I, I wasn't offended, but it made me a little uncomfortable.
17: Correct. Frank, I, that was exactly my impressions. I mean, um I, I just it It actually it offended me, i mean it, uh, just the first the first season was on point it was the the, the perfect blending of nostalgia uh and and I, I just thought I just thought it was great now yeah. I get into watching the second season, and my god they're they're like it it 's the same thing that ruined discovery for me yeah see, i mean i i, I didn't
2: i didn 't see discovery but i i 'm watching now the third season of Picard. Based on Eric Balson's recommendation and John Katsimatidis' recommendation. And I'm liking mm-hmm. it very much. I've only seen the first two episodes, but I'm liking it very much. Okay. Thank you, Norman. Uh, hey, if you want to try in your hand at winning $1,000, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Seventh caller, you'll get to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds as part of the $1,000 Minute Straight Ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. This is my Michelle Guns N' Roses. This is a Greg Calby selection. Happy birthday to him, celebrating his birthday this week. And uh, without further ado, before we get to Brian Kilmeade, why don't we give someone an opportunity to try and win $1,000 as part of...
0: The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute... Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your
2: host, Frank Murano. Uh, let's say hello Billy in Suffolk. Hello, Billy. What's going on, bud? Hey, Billy. Have you heard this segment before?
17: Uh, I have, but I don't recall exactly how to play. Okay, you very, can help me. Yeah, very
2: it. simple, very simple. So um, I'm going to ask you a bunch of trivia questions. Most of them are pretty easy. They're just in a bunch of different categories. And um, if you, you're going to have 60 seconds to answer them all correctly. If you answer a question correctly, I'm just going to move on to the next question and so we can make our way through all 10 of these quickly. If you answer a question incorrectly, you'll hear a wrong buzzer. Uh, the timer will begin after I ask you the first question. Okay? Okay, simple enough. All right. Sounds good. All right. Let's get started. What month is St. Patrick's Day? That's going to be March. What is a shape with only three sides called? Triangle. What city is Lori Lightfoot currently the mayor of? Chicago. Who did Barack Obama defeat in the 2012 presidential election?
17: Um, gosh, don't fit. I have his name in my head, but I can't say
2: it. Uh, let's go to the next question. All right. But, but then how are you going to answer all 10 if you don't answer this one?
17: Oh, I have to answer that question. Oh, it was, uh, not Mitt Romney. It was, yes. uh, um, okay.
2: What actor starred in the films Casino, Raging Bull, and The Godfather Part 2?
17: Oh, um, uh, oh, damn it. Um, Not a Pacino.
2: Uh, It was. um... All right. Sorry, we're out of time. The name you were searching for there is Robert De Niro. Robert De Niro.
5: Oh my God! Ah, So yeah, now he's
2: he's 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 an up and comer. He's got a very bright future. Uh, He he has some talent when it comes to acting. Billy, thanks for playing. I'm going to put you on hold. Kenneth is going to give you a consolation prize. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Billy. Appreciate it. Uh, See, it sounds easy until you're in the hot seat. But, yeah, that uh, Robert De Niro, I've heard of him.
3: I think you had him stumped at St. Patrick's Day because it was such an easy
2: question. He— Is this really the well, question that's, you're asking? That's, that's always what happens. All right. Uh, let me say hello to our regular Thursday guest, New York Times bestselling author, co-host of Fox and Friends on Fox News, nationally syndicated radio talk show host, one of the most listened to in the country, uh, the one and only Brian Kilmeade. Brian, it's great to talk with you again. Uh, what's going on, Frank? Well, you know, everybody is talking about the interview that you did with uh, Ron DeSantis. It's made a ton of news, not just uh, nationally, but internationally, quite frankly. And you really uh, boiled, you brought, boiled it down to brass tacks and uh, made news with whether or not he's going to run for president or not. Am I wrong to assume that there's
18: an the excellent chance you're running for president?
11: So what I would say is we've got a lot of support. A lot of people want us to do it. Um, I've got business to attend to. This book is part of that. Uh, my legislative session is part of that. Uh, so we get on the end of that in a couple months. Uh, we'll, we'll be able to see uh, see where it goes. But I do think it's not all just about who ends up running for president. That's, that's important because I think nationally we need a change in direction. Uh, but I think our individual states do have the capacity to drive the national agenda. You know, Florida drove the national agenda on so many things on having kids in school during covid on opposing the 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 employer vax mandates and things like that education we've led the way uh i like to see a competition amongst all the all the red states about you know who can kind of outdo each other so i do think it's a blueprint for other states i do think it can be applied nationally but it's less about me than about i think the underlying principles uh, that we need
18: to restore Mm -hmm. our country
2: Brian, after interviewing him, what was your takeaway in terms of whether or not he's running?
18: I think he's running. I don't think he's saying hey, that about it. I read, uh, read the whole book, the whole thing, Blueprint Florida, Blueprint for the Rest of the Country. And one of my questions was, what makes you think it's going to work any, uh, everywhere? You know, obviously he's worked in Florida, and nobody challenges that, nobody. So how do you do it in Illinois? How do you do it here in New York? you going to bring that blueprint. Oh, really? The people that want to up your taxes want to put 800,000 low-income housings into neighborhoods without even asking? 800,000 people into Long Island? That's what they're proposing? Do you think that would ever happen in Florida? You know, you see you see what's happening now with criminal justice reform. The blueprint in Florida is back to cops, fund the cops. Is that the feeling here where they just lowered their standards for the NYPD because some of these candidates can't run one and a half miles? So that's the problem. Uh, I love the blueprint. And everybody in Florida loves the blueprint. He won by 19 points. See, they love the way corporate America has been hamstrung, way the way people go into schools and try to learn math and science and not teaching third graders uh, what sex is. They love that. But a lot of California is not going to take that. Uh, Maryland's not going to take that. So that's the question. You know, how do you get moderates, how do you get independents to vote for you? because if it's about winning and losing and that's what it's all about whether it's sports or politics or life you can't win with your your party alone
2: it, you know it's funny his likely opponent in the republican primaries obviously former president donald trump Donald Trump has been on a uh, tirade uh, bashing uh, Fox. Uh, I won't reiterate to you all the things that he's been posting on Truth Social, but he's uh, unloading both barrels on on Fox, calling them a rhino network, uh, saying uh, if Murdoch uh, doesn't believe that uh, the election wasn't stolen, then he has no business in the news business. Is this strategic on the part of Trump or is this just him lashing out because he doesn't like some of the coverage that Fox has been doing?
18: I mean, that's a common refrain with President Trump. I mean, remember, he did not show up for a Fox debate in 2016. He had a rally for troops or for uh, for military instead of showing up. Uh, He's constantly if you look back at his tweets, constantly railing against different coverage, different personalities. On Fox. That's his thing. And, you know, some people might look at, well, Governor DeSantis took out Andrea Mitchell because she was, you know, mm-hmm. he did it, it. was a smart thing to do because he turned to you because you just mischaracterized uh, something I passed and I wrote. That's not what it is. And she says, okay. He thought the apology was terrible. He said, I'm not doing interviews with you anymore. And then remember 60 Minutes. 60 Minutes says, you're only giving vaccines to people that voted for you, giving it to supermarkets to distribute because they contributed to you. He blew them. Ron DeSantis blew them up. So you know, it just doesn't. He doesn't have his own. You know, he's not big on Twitter. He communicates differently. But that, believe me, they're gonna. I'm sure that Ron DeSantis is, is gonna feel that way. Maybe Nikki Haley is gonna feel that way. Maybe after a, a Republican debate, if uh, uh, Nikki, you know, you might have Mike Pompeo saying, "Does anyone comment on my on my exchanges that I had with with uh, you know with?" With different people, whoever ends up on that stage, with Vivek Ramaswamy, whoever. So I just think that that's the president's thing. He pushes and he pulls and he uh, he's combative. You remember, he was kind enough to do this horrible thing called talk to the press. You got a president right now that doesn't ever talk to the press. But what President Trump would do, he'd spar you. I watched you during the day. You're terrible. Oh, you're so unfair. What's your question? So that's that's President Trump. Brian, it's Obi Murray. How are you? Good
3: to catch you again. Uh, uh, Thanks for coming on. Uh, Well, thanks uh, for having me on. (laughs) It's Frank's show. I'm just a guest here, too. But the question also becomes, how does he beat President Trump in the primary? As Frank says, he's not talking to certain people, and you you point out bringing the message of Florida to the rest of the country, and where's that going to go for the independents and, and the swing voters? But before he gets to that point, he's got to beat Donald Trump in the primary, and I haven't seen the polling that says he can yet.
18: Right, uh four polls, five polls have Trump leading and and I think that's got to make the Trump camp feel good, and I thought it was genius and instinctively correct for Trump, Donald Trump to go to Palestine. Nobody else showing up, really. I mean, Buttigieg shows up at seven in the morning, scared to death dressed in a costume that he that he probably got up, uh, at party city, and then you uh, you know actually I got to give credit to the EPA director for showing up, and then for the most part, he has not had a lunch or dinner with white supremacists. that's always a plus. <laughs> For a candidate. <laughs> uh, the other thing is, remember, Barack Obama was getting crushed by Hillary Clinton. Crushed. Right. And when said that, no, he was trailing But I never forget when he got in in that freezing day when he announced he was down by 22 points. I'm thinking to myself, wow, I wonder if this is the right time for this guy. He looks like he's 22 years old. And he obviously crushed her early. Hillary would rally late. So I would not get caught up in early polls. And I just think that because... Our, your show in particular, Frank. You cover this stuff. We cover it on Fox. A lot of people don't know Desantis. Mm. You know, a lot of people. It's not just a, It's. I don't think it's a two man race. Nikki Haley was in yesterday. I, I think Nikki Haley's going to be good. I, I find it hard to say that uh, Vivek Ramaswamy uh, will probably force the, elevate the conversation. The guy's a young genius, but I also think that uh, Tim Scott is about two or three weeks away. How do you dismiss him? I mean, yeah, you I uh, I've been in South Carolina. I walk around the streets with him. He it, it's like walking around with uh with uh, Tom Cruise, not Ted Cruz. And, um,
2: you know, uh, Glenn Youngkin, Governor Youngkin, was here yesterday having lunch with one of your guests this week, John Katsimatidis. I don't think he'd be uh, so solicitous of taking John Katsimatidis to lunch if uh, he wasn't planning for something big come uh, 2024. And I do wonder how much the wide field of candidates not named Trump actually helps Trump in the primary. But you could drive yourself crazy exploring all these possibilities. In a fun way, though. This is fun, though. Right. It is fun. To me it is, uh, but obviously there are very big stakes here. Brian, you t-
3: I think, Brian, yesterday you talked about the Yunkin uh, dilemma almost. He's got one-termer on your show. You're talking about that.
18: It kind of frees him up instead of people saying, hey, what are you doing? You just got the job. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in business, uh, and, and you've just got the job a year and a half. There's so much to do in Virginia. It's a purple state. Uh, everyone's going to be vying for it. Instead he's like, well, listen, you know I'm out of here in four years, so don't even say I'm, I'm, I'm not focusing on my job. I, you know, I think one month in or two months in, I had a chance to spend a day with Glenn Youngkin. The guy's unbelievably organized. Photographic memory. Looks at his script. It was like it was in teleprompter. I'm so jealous. He, <laughs> he's got. He is. You know what I like about it, guys? I want people elected in office that are clearly the the kids with the hand up, smartest in the classroom. And I think with Youngkin, he's that kid who also was a Division One basketball player mm. on a full ride in college. So you can't just say he just loved to study the books, not to say anything wrong with that. But uh, I think that Glenn Youngkin brings a lot to the table, and I thought his greatest weakness was China. But guess who's been unbelievably aggressive on China? And it's Youngkin, because Youngkin's... Uh, uh, Youngkin spent so much time doing business in China. In fact, Trump leaned on him and saluted him in phase one of the China deal that got overwhelmed because of the pandemic that came through three weeks later. I, so I find it hard to dismiss him, too. But he's a little he's a very nice guy. And I just think that it's going to get really ugly on that uh, debate stage if he gets in. Well, I think one of the things, too, you have to look at with Youngkin, he get he was elected
3: one year after the president and therefore If he were to stay as governor and not run this time, he can lay the groundwork and be all set so that the next presidential race in 2028 – you'll have an open seat unequivocal. Yeah, because and I, both I th- guys, B- President Biden and President Trump, would be one-termers. No matter what happens, Trump's gone and Biden's gone after this election. Right, and,
2: and I think whoever the nominee is, wins. Youngkin would have to be on their, uh, their short list. Talking to Brian Kilmeade, catch him on Fox & Friends, catch him on his own nationally syndicated radio uh, program mid-morning. Uh, Brian, one thing that uh, was very interesting is that the there was this week, a Tuesday night I think it was, the House Select Committee on China had a fairly tame, very respectful, very substantive, no fireworks prime time bipartisan hearing that focused on the Chinese government's human rights abuses. They discussed onshoring manufacturing and warned about TikTok and vulnerable personal data. Where where do you see these hearings going? Uh, Obi and I were just talking off air. Certainly, very different in both tone and substance from say something like the. January 6th committee hearings, which also took place in primetime.
18: I, I think that's a great point, Frank, which, by the way, you up 24 hours. I mean, if you're watching primetime, uh, <laughs> did you phone it in yesterday? Were you in a coma uh, for to be watching this? But I would say that Mike Gallagher should go out of the way. Uh, my hope is he just meets with some Democrats that he thinks are serious and go, guys. Let's try to keep this as bipartisan as possible so our infighting doesn't become the story because what I think we're doing, what they're trying to do is educate the American public for legislation that should be coming, and it's going to be talked about on the debate stage for— uh, it's going to be talked about on the stump with Joe Biden, I think, if he has a brain in his head, and for Republicans on the stage. So what you're doing is trying to educate the American people. You put people out there that know, like H.R. McMaster, that know these, uh, the magnitude of the problem, that talked about how pervasive it is to them buying charter schools and boarding schools to put giving University of Pennsylvania $300 million dollars and what they're doing on universities on every level so if you can explain that to people and then tell them you got to turn around and take to get that tick tock away from your 13 year old that's coming down the pike mm. so i th- i like it i like it and mike gallagher seemed to me when he first they first got named by mccarthy as head of this brand new china select committee he said you know i'm going to do it i hope to get democrat support he-, he didn't sound optimistic he is uh now he's he was pretty pleased. And that's after the, that marathon debate to find out who the speaker was. They had a chance to really mingle with Democrats. And Gallagher came back and said, I actually think I'm going to get some Democrats on my committee that are going to take part in this. And sure enough, he got 10.
3: And, and you know, Brian, you mentioned TikTok. The other question was, where are you where are U.S. investors going to invest their money? And the question is, why are they going to go to China when that's listed by BlackRock as one of the top places to invest your money? And that was a big question there. How do we get them off of that and say invest somewhere else besides China?
18: Right. You know, I uh, I that's some great questions that I'd love to get these CEOs on from the CEO of Ford. Uh, you know, uh Blackrock's been the biggest embarrassment. I mean, think about this. Uh Blackrock's out there touting China still, you know what they're investing in while while divesting from anything oil and gas in this country, even though it would that doesn't maximize profits for their shareholders. So we gotta find out who the where loyalty lies. There's a lot of people, uh Dalio as well, he keeps saying, "Well, you know, this is a rough spot for America and China, but they'll get through it." I'm going to stay. I'm going to stay uh, bullish on China. Really, thanks. Appreciate it. Uh, you're the, one of the richest men of the world. Can you possibly be a little bit red, white, and blue for one time in your life? And what you got to do is shame these people into doing it. And once one place to start is Democrats and Republicans. Uh, telling mm. Nike, which, by the way, is moving a lot of stuff out, Adidas moving a lot of their manufacturing out, uh, believe it or not, Apple moving a lot of their manufacturing out, and and s- salute them while condemning
2: others. Uh, Brian, what do you have coming up on uh, both Fox and & Friends and radio today?
18: Uh, John Castamititi is going to be on Fox & Friends at 6.30. Uh, his book is re- excellent. Uh, talking about you know basically what he went through as a self made. Uh, we're mentioned on the same artist. page, by the way. Yeah. So would you, uh, would you that? yes, yeah, I'm you me. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, now we know. It'll j- be a, best I, a lot of the a lot of the stuff I had no idea about, mm. like how he started and what happened with his family. But I'm going to uh, talk to him about that. Uh, we're also uh, on our show today. I got a great roster of guests. Uh, Haley Barber ran the RNC. He's going to talk about what we just talked about, about Donald Trump leading. What does it mean this early? Uh, Senator Danes, he's come out and he knows he wants to see if he could uh, get John Tester out of there. Uh, He's sharing that uh, his state uh, with him. Senator Danes is going to be on with us, too. He's also going to talk about the lack of transparency with the Justice Department yesterday. Uh, Mark Thiessen is going to be there. Steve Moore, as you know, hosts the show, and we'll do a simulcast on Varney mm. & and Company. And Dr., uh, Dr. Marty McCary will talk about what we now know about the masks, vaccine, myoconditis, everything, how, how we were misled and why this administration is going out of their way not to find out where the origins of this virus is. So Dr. Marty McCary will be there.
2: Right, it's going to be an action-packed show. Thanks, Brian. Appreciate it, as always.
18: Uh, yeah, also, Mike DeWine joining us on television on the Toxic Train Debate. Oh, boy. So uh, it's going to be, yeah, we've got a lot to talk about today. Uh, no kidding. All
2: right, Brian, thanks, as always. Appreciate it. We'll see you next week.
18: Go get him, Frank. Thank Thank
2: you. If you want to comment on uh, any portion of our conversation, give me a call. 800 848 9222. We'll also do 15 seconds of fame in a moment. Frank Morano here with Obi Murray. You can be heard at 800 848 9222 for 15 seconds straight ahead.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. 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 It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
18: To buy. If the days are long, when the sun goes down, you might need a
2: place to call your own. Somewhere out there on the other side of me,
18: you might hear a voice of
2: This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, this is the song, The Other Side of Midnight, by Stevie G and the Tin Soldiers. Frank Morano here. have uh, been very, very pleased to be joined for the last four hours by O.B. Murray. How have you enjoyed yourself the last four hours? It's great being here.
11: I
3: love
2: it. You guys uh, are, are like, not. it's like middle of the day,
13: the
3: energy here. That's everyone's, right. That's everyone's, right.
2: Everyone's, everyone's here. Everyone's wide awake,
3: kicking and, you know, screaming, and they don't <laughs> want to talk to you, but they're here. <laughs> that's true. Who could blame them?
2: Hey, uh, by the way, I uh, I want to correct a mistake that I made earlier. I I have a a commitment to accuracy on this program, so if I say something that's inaccurate, I want to correct it. And I want to thank the listener, Eric, for pointing this out to me. Earlier in the program, I mentioned that it was Jay Osmond's birthday. It is Jay Osmond's birthday. However, I said that he is 67 years old. That was an error. He's actually 68 years old. So my apologies to Jay Osmond and to all of his many fans out there. Apologies. All right. Uh, without further ado, let's give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds as part of.
0: The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. fame. Cheech.
17: Hey, shout out to Joey from
5: Ronkonkoma. America, wake up. Get Antifa. Charlie. Sister Moron, Sister Moron, Sister Moron. Victor.
10: Uh, I recently saw a curious uh, personal ad in a local newspaper that stated, manufacturer of Shabbos candles, Yorzai candles, and Hanukkah candles seeks soulmate, preferably (laughs) (laughs) non-smokers.
2: Raji! Mike! Morning, Frank. Um, For Lent, I gave up sex,
10: and my wife, she gave up resisting. Therein lies my dilemma.
2: Brian. Yes, Frank, answer.
17: Why are we not allowed to to criticize the anointed one on the station? Why? Who who is the anointed one? You know who the anointed was, the the messiah, Sid.
2: Well, you know, because he he gets a lot of criticism, uh, but uh, I don't like it from callers because Sid's not here to defend himself. Boris.
17: Sid is not a moron, but he needs a look at
1: com. Twi-
5: James! Yeah, yeah. The Beverly Hillbillies. Poor boy named Jeb. Barely kept his family fed. Then one day he's shooting at some crude. And up come from the ground a bubbling crude.
2: And finally, Roger. Remember how Rush Limbaugh used to say remind us of that dogs have masters, cats have staff. That's not that's that's a good one. Thank you, Roger. All right. Uh, we'll end it there. My thanks to Obi Murray. You can find him on Twitter at uh, O'Brien Murray. That's right. And by the way, are dogs smarter than cats smarter? Which one? Uh, master versus uh yeah, well, it's, it's a, versus and staff. By the way, that's a good he question. He gave up sex to his wife. <laughs> well, she gave up resisting. All right, uh, until tomorrow, we're gonna ask Frank anything. Frank Morano, good day.